Marie-Fifi. Bonjour et bienvenue à la 250. Je m'appelle Darren Mooney and my co-host Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? Willkommen, Damen und Herren. Comment ça va, mon ami? Bienvenido, bienvenuto. Connaissez-vous? No. Desperado. Desposito. I'm 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 doing this, Darren. I'm um I'm 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 joining you on your on your French journey, even though I haven't spoken any French so far. I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. That I literally exhausted all of my French, so I'm I'm very glad that you didn't answer. I use all of my English. I use up all of my French. J'ai un très petit peu de français. But uh, yes, so as you may have guessed, je, and uh, je, je ne, je, je ne, um, how do you say? Je, je n'ai pas de parle français. De parle français. Je n'ai pas de français. Oh God, we're murdering. Um, we uh, are. Any, any, you will yeah, notice. Yeah. You will notice that we will notice that we did not uh, wait until we had a francophone guest, at least as far as I'm aware, on this podcast. Uh, but we do have a spectacular guest, the wonderful Mr. Luke Dunn. How are you, Luke? Hi, I I will be speaking exclusively to English listeners. I'm not as worldly as Darren, or as well travelled. <laughs> Darren is one hundred percent reading off something. Oh, oh, wow, is that true, Darren? No, it is, is not. It, no, what? Wow, tell the no, truth. It is not. I I did French. We're going to do that thing that. Uh, have you done an exam online? I no. haven't done any, but apparently there's a thing where you have to show them around your room, like using your <laughs> webcam. So you don't have notes. Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's like, can we look under the bed? Uh, no, I'm not sure you want to. Um, <laughs> what's in the cupboard? Yeah. Uh, what's in the box? What's in the box? But yes, we are discussing, as you may have guessed from the gratuitous French or from looking at the title of the episode that you are now listening to, a French movie this week. It is 1955's Rafifi. Um, it is a French heist movie, arguably one of the definitive heist movies, one of the movies that codified the genre. Um, so I reached out to our wonderful friend, Luke Dunn, and asked if he would like to join us for this discussion. Um, because, first of all, Luke was one of the only people I know who has actually seen the movie, so that narrowed down the category substantially. But also because I know that Luke is a big fan of heist movies and con movies in general. I think that Out of Sight is one of your favorite films ever. Is that fair to say? Uh, absolutely. And, like, I think if I, if I were to go through my favorite movies a lot of them would be in the heist or you know kind of crime genre uh, like like out of sight or like this or uh set it off or um yeah just a lot a lot of different different movies like that I, I'll, I'll, get, I'll get into a little bit later i think what it is about heist movies that i particularly enjoy and what i think people in general particularly enjoy because you rarely hear people saying that they don't like heist movies they're kind of universally right popular and, I, I i do appreciate you bringing me on darren but i do see what you're doing here i do i do see your game we do I, this i don't appreciate it because <laughs> uh, i think i think i complained too much that you were only bringing me on for bad movies or or, or movies that had like very difficult discussions and I can see you're buttering me up now for movies coming down the line. I, I mean, Luke, did you really think we were going to let the 17th anniversary of Super Babies, Baby Geniuses 2 pass without proper celebration this podcast? I don't think you did. 
And I think if you did, you don't understand this podcast. It's like, I owe you a debt. You know, you took the rap for me. <laughs> I have to, we, to come on for one I last mean, job. We, we will categorize you, Luke. Like, they, 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 we, we might change the way we categorize you, but we'll always put you in a box. We'll <laughs> say, like, you're our heist man. We yeah. they, they, did we did we come to you and, and say we've got a job for you, um, Luke? And you explain you're retired, and then eventually say, um, "Darren, you son of a." I'm in. <laughs> no, I, I explained to Luke it was an impossible job. Nobody has talked about Rafifi yet on the podcast. It's an untalkable, untalkaboutable movie. I mean, you look at it, you study it. It's a rough piece of architecture. It's very tough to get inside. You need to have very special skills. You need to be able to like read subtitles in order to understand it. You need to be able to watch it and find it available online. You need top people who can find it and recommend it to you. It is a requires a very special set of skills, and that is taken. But I'm still going to use it here. So, Absolutely, yeah, no, um, and listeners are going to be particularly thrilled by the influential and innovative part of the podcast where we're completely silent for 30 thirty-five minutes, minutes thirty-three minutes. Um, while we podcast, we podcast in complete silence for 33 minutes. There'll be a moment where you just hear a piano key go off in the background and that's it. But yes, so we were talking about Rafifi, which is obviously, as I mentioned before, the 1955 uh, Jules Dassin French heist movie. A very interesting movie to talk about in a number of respects, which we'll probably get into maybe a little bit kind of later on in terms of the spoilers. But this is... We're rounding off what is a very short world tour season that we've had. Over the past five weeks since the start of May, we have taken... Uh, listeners from Argentina, where we talked about Wild Tales, to Japan, where we talked about movies like uh, Spirited Away, Princess Mononoke, and last week, Harakiri. And we're rounding off with this movie from 1955. It's an interesting one to round off on because it is arguably, it is a very international uh, film. Much like, as we talked about, I think, last, last year when we talked about Wages of Fear, you can arguably see something happening in European cinema where they are trying to compete with Hollywood. Uh, but understanding that maybe no individual uh, market can do that by itself, and so trying to create a pan-international type of film. It is directed by Jules Dassin, who, despite what the name might imply, is actually an American filmmaker. Um, He had been blacklisted in Hollywood, and we'll talk more about that later on, Uh, but he had come to France, he needed to work, and he was handed uh, the novel written by Auguste Le Breton, and told, would he be willing to adapt that? Uh, He did. He made several changes during the process of adaptation because he did not think that the novel was a good one. I think that uh, Truffaut famously reviewed the film by stating, from one of the worst crime novels I have ever read comes one of the best film noirs that I have ever seen. That seems to have just about set the tone for it. We joked a moment ago about the fact that there is a 33-minute silent sequence in the middle of this movie, and that largely exists because Dassin read the novel took out all of the stuff that he thought was unworkable from the novel and decided that he needed something to fill it instead, so he filled it with 33 minutes of silence. Um, It is a remarkable film. But before we talk about it, Luke, do you remember the first time that you saw Rafifi? Why you sought it out and kind of what your your first response to it was? Yeah, I think um, before I started filming Dublin, uh, I wrote for a website that some listeners might remember called Film Fix. And I used to run a feature on that called uh, Cold Film Club, where kind of readers would, I would kind of put three particular th- films of a theme up and, and readers would vote for what they wanted me to uh, watch and write about. And I think that one of the first ones I did for that was Rope, 
uh, the Hitchcock film, uh, with you know the fa- it's famously kind of shot as as one continuous uh, sequence, uh, or to, to look like Jimmy Stewart. Sequence. Yes, yes. Um, and I think when I was like looking up research for that film, I came across Rafifi and the kind of it's. I, I suppose it's 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 a big selling point. Uh, is that that kind of extended silent uh, sequence, and it's just one of those things that kind of caught my eye. And I think after watching it, uh, I like that was that was a few years ago at this point, and it was I was kind of really blown away by it. But it's it is one of those things that you kind of it has this like kind of big flashing headline thing that catches your eye and puts it on your list or whatever. But it is more than that, you know. It is more than that sequence. Um, Definitely for, 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 for me anyway. And so was it Love at First Sight? Was this immediately like one of the best films you've ever seen or have you come back to it? Has your opinion of it kind of shifted over the oh, years? Oh, yeah. How, I, mean, how would... uh, I think it's, it is it is one of those that uh, for me, it kind of, it really kind of opened up my kind of, like it, it, it kind of opened up a different kind of appreciation more films for me at that time, you know, because I would have been a bit younger, and it's like it kind of shows you um, what you can do with the medium um, and kind of different different kind of things that I at that time wouldn't have seen it in, in in film before, you know. And it's it is one of those things that like I came to that film from kind of being interested in rope and looking stuff for that, and it's kind of it's like another domino falling down because then I like I would have looked up more French films, more French films from back then. You, you know what I mean? It, 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 it was one that really kind of uh, opened up kind of new possibilities. And it was just one of those things that you get like really excited about. And then you kind of keep that going, you know? So it's, it's like, I, I took out my own personal DVD copy uh, to, to, to rewatch for this, Darren, uh, which I had to get, like, I, I know this film quite well by reputation, but it was hard to track down. My DVD copy uh, came from Korea, <laughs> so like I, I'd have to turn up. <laughs> this this might want to pay attention next week, where it's quite possible that a guest will have a very similar I, story. I just had a premonition. Yeah, <laughs> like next week's guest may also have got a Korean copy of the movie that we are covering next. It's almost Korea's as if Korea loves fine, Yeah, it's almost as if Korea loves cinema. Or it something would be crazy it would be like a that. great way for me to learn multiple languages uh we're watching this again and again if i wasn't like a very stupid person this is so so korea or north korea (laughs) (laughs) i i I couldn't say kim (laughs) the 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 former leader of north korea had every movie um so he directed most of them himself um, right (laughs) (laughs) well he he, He the it's yeah actually that that is one of the facts about Kim Il Sung is 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 that he directed Star Wars, but um, he also invented he, the hamburger um, if I remember correctly as well. That's one of my all other favorite he, details. Incredible thing! Did you know that he 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 isn't even known for playing golf, but but he he once played a round where he got eighteen holes in one. Um, I'm but I imagine he didn't do the round in seventeen <laughs> shots. <laughs> well, that would be ridiculous. <laughs> that they, would be they, ridiculous. Um, how how would that be possible? They, 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 um, no, the thing that's that that's that's 
um, yeah. Anyway, they, they, it's 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 because they're they're flogging all of the movies that used to belong to to uh, to to um, the former Korean dictators um, collection. I I made Kim Jong Un listeners, but uh, just like Jill Desan, I just want to say for the record, I am not now and have never been <laughs> a communist. <laughs> Actually, not to put too fine a point on it, but one of the interesting things about Dasan is that he never actually took that oath. He never actually said that he had not or never had Did, been a communist. He was not. Um, I, he, I, I feel like communists, like believers in state socialism can probably say, like with no contradiction, that they're not communists. Because, uh, like you, you, you know, like true believers could say, well, we haven't gotten to a point of communism yet, so I suppose I'm not a communist, but I would like to be. You know? They're, 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 that's what some yeah, kind of yeah, um, exactly very exactly. far uh, left people say. They say there there has never been a communist a country. Communi- yeah. Or kind of... So so that, that, that's what I would say if I was in Huac. <laughs> Maybe. Right, so- to, to, to bring it full circle then, and to provide context, so the director Jules Dassin, um, he was a Hollywood, he was a Hollywood director. He had joined the Communist Party in the 1930s. He grew up in Harlem, and again, he said watching like people struggling to feed their families, living so close to Fifth Avenue, and seeing all the wealth there, you fret, you get ideas, seeing a lot of poverty around you, and it's a very natural process to become involved in communism. He left the Communist Party in 1939. He said, disillusioned after the Soviet Union signed a non-aggression pact with Hitler. He ended up in Hollywood shortly before World War II. He worked as an apprentice with like Alfred Hitchcock and Garson Kanan. He was directing movies for MGM in France, including, say, A Reunion in France, a Joan Crawford vehicle with John Wayne, in which her character comes to believe her Nazi is a, sorry, her fiancé is a Nazi. Not her Nazi is her fiancé. That would be a different movie. Uh, but the idea is, but basically, Dasan had, after the war, when Huac was first heating up, um, producer Daryl F. Zanuck had basically heard that there were rumblings that Dasan was going to be called in front of Huac. And he said, actually, you know what? You should go to UK, take a holiday. Sorry? Did we say that it's the House of Un-American Activities? Committee? We should indeed. Huac, probably make, did. Huac makes it sound like it's Al Pacino having a cough. Yes, it is Huac. House of American, <laughs> American Activities Commission. Um, but basically, so Zanuck apparently got wind that there was a possibility that Desan would be called before them and named. And he said, you should go to the UK and you should make a movie over in the UK, over there, far away from all this stuff that is happening that could potentially embarrass you and us. Um, apparently, uh, Desan believed that Nobody was going to name him as a collaborator. He thought he was fine. And he was shocked to discover that apparently directors Edward Dimitrik and Frank Tuttle had named him as a party membership since the 1930s and damned him for his career, basically. So he left. He ended up leaving the UK then and moving to France in 1953, where he was, because he was unemployable, he could not speak French. He apparently said he could order in a restaurant. That was the level of French that he had when he moved to France in 1953. And so in need of money, he agreed to direct the movie Rafifi, which we're talking about today. So, uh, yeah, he, he did a short called Omelette du Fromage um, <laughs> before, before this, sorry. But like, uh, it, like he, he refused, he refused to renounce. He was given the opportunity to renounce his membership or to insist that he was not a member or to name other names, and he, to his credit, refused to do so. 
Um, he refused to kind of pass the book down the line. In fact, he only died in 2008. He was giving interviews to The Guardian in 2002 where he was defending himself and basically saying, yeah, I was a communist. I joined the Communist Party. And the reason I joined the Communist Party was because I grew up in poverty and I witnessed what that was like. So I find that quite remarkable. And like, even after Rafifi, like that followed him for decades like he talks about like he took Rafifi to Cannes where he won the best director prize um, at Cannes for this and he said that like none of the Americans there with the exception of Gene Kelly would talk to him like none of the American delegations from any of the studios would acknowledge his existence whenever they'd be in the same room as him they'd shuffle uncomfortably and they'd look at their feet Gene Kelly was apparently the only person who would actually speak to him which is stunning um, it is worth noting, though, that apparently his trip to Cannes in 1955 wasn't entirely without merit. There was a Greek filming competition called Stella starring an actress, Melina Mercouri. It was there that he married her and they went on to make a string of films together, including Never on a Sunday, uh, Fedora and Tapkapi. So, you know, it ha- maybe has something of a of a happy ending, so to speak. Um, but yes, he, he married her at Cannes. Uh, no, he met her at Cannes and then they married later and then they made a string of films together. He didn't make three films at Cannes in 1955. I think that's an unreasonable expectation even for a director who worked well in the studio that, Yeah, that's like some Kim Jong-il sort of... <laughs> yeah, sort of man at work I, there. I was going to say, because you said only Gene Kelly came to him, I was going to say like Gene Kelly pulled him into a painting. Three separate films. <laughs> Where he directed three films and married a Greek actor. Um but no, no, it is. So yeah, so that is the, the background. That is the baggage with which this film comes. And it has been argued that one of the big things about Rafifi, uh, which managed to get a release in the States, actually. It played very well in France. It played very well in Europe. And it came to the States. It garnered great reviews in the States. And it actually managed to do some small amount of business, which is quite impressive for a French film with subtitles. But it generated some controversy. And we'll talk about some of the controversies uh, in the spoiler zone when it comes to content. Because there was some content-related controversy from the uh, League of Decency. The League of Decency had some notes uh, to make on this What movie. about the... What, is this the Catholic League of Decency? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Nobody expects the Catholic League of Decency. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it, it should be noted that um, United Artists refused to take his name off the project. Um, they refused to take Desan's name off the film or to credit him under a pseudonym, making this the first movie to break the blacklist. Um, it was a cause of protest. Um, the House on american Activities Committee protested that. Um, they felt that it was an example of a Hollywood studio. Who would have thought a Hollywood studio associated with Charlie Chaplin reacting poorly to the blacklist? Uh, but it has been argued that, yes, this was the first movie to break the blacklist, which is a nice note well, to have on this particular film. The, the I guess the kind of backlash on Huac um start started kind of early, you know. Yeah. Like it, it, they, they, I think, I think looking back, you ima- one is kind of tempted to imagine that that the, that this was um illustrative of of a broader American culture, and it certainly got spoken about a lot. But there was a lot of opposition of it at the time. I guess, and and it didn't. I I it didn't take too long before there there was real kind of questions about what are we doing. But yeah, the, the, well, the, the damage that it did in that of, time. A, is, a lot of people, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And a lot of people very severely affected by it. A lot of passive complicity, like the studios refusing to stand up again because they were worried that the finger will be pointed at them. Like I think you have like the studio heads like Louis V. Mayer going along with it because they're worried that if they don't, the next thing will be Jews. They'll be pointing at Jewish people in Hollywood. And they'll be saying, 
well, look, the Jewish people in Hollywood, they're un-American and we should worry about those. Um, and again, like the whole thing is like, again, very fascinating, very sad. But you have people like, say, Jack Warner, who was like hugely pro-American intervention in the war, hugely anti-Nazi, like, and then comes out in full support of UAC because of the Warner Brothers strike, I think, in 1939, 1940, uh, and then becomes this kind of like big supporter of the blacklist in Hollywood. It's a very, very dark period in Hollywood history. And it's kind of amazing we haven't talked about it more um, but we're going to fix that now. No, I think, I think we're, I think we're, that's, that's enough context unless either of you want to go deeper on it. I would also note that like even critics who praised the movie found themselves attacked. The, like the motion picture Herald attacked New York Times critic Bosley Crowther, who is a perennial favorite on the 250, Bosley Crowther from the New York Times, attacked his critic for praising a known communist who escaped subpoena service by fleeing abroad. Um, this was the climate in which this film was released in the States. It's, it's I like, stunning. I like adding the word known to somebody. <laughs> <laughs> like, if, if you call someone like a known gymnast. It immediately <laughs> makes it more sinister. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's a known donut eater, is that guy. Uh, and you're wondering, wait, I know what known means. What does the other thing mean when you put it together? Um, but Luke, sorry, I think you, you kind of mentioned that you had some thoughts in terms of, of UAC and its context, I think, before. Well, I might save it for after the spoilers on, because it's okay. really, for, for a film that kind of was made so directly after that period, it it isn't, uh, it's not like a super heavy laden response to yeah. all of that stuff. But it is peppered in there, and I think, oh, yeah, we can talk about that later. Yes, there are some very specific beats that I think are are drawn from UAC there as well, and involving the, the director himself. Um, because it's we're not in the spoiler zone yet, I will say that uh, it is worth noting one of the things about the the novel that he changed was he changed the identity of the villains, and we'll talk about why he changed that identity when we get to the spoiler zone. But in early drafts of the story, his writer uh, and his producers suggested making the villains American um, as a way of allowing him to perhaps make some statement about the American film industry. And his response was, no, I don't want this to be didactic. I don't want this to feel like I'm settling a score or kind of grinding an axe. So, no, we're not going to do that, which I think is, is, is interesting of itself. All right, then, uh, before we jump in there, before we jump into the spoiler zone, three questions to get us started. So, Luke, do you think that Rafifi belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made. I do. Um, I think that there are certain films in this genre and kind of in and around this period, or, or certainly that kind of the mid kind of 20th century that you could kind of, you could make a case for that being the one on the list, I guess. Uh, but this is my one. Uh, like, I think it's, it, it's, I, I kind of favor it over some some other kind of similar films, um, and I think, as I said earlier, like that experience that I had, where it, like I think it is quite accessible, uh, in its way, and I think for that reason, it's a good jumping off point, if you're, for whatever reason, <laughs> going through all the films on the on the two fifty, uh, to 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 kind of discover uh, other other films and other filmmakers and yeah exactly yeah so i would say yeah there i i i I would um i probably agree with luke um especially if um if the people listening are have their own 
um, 250 podcast. There's like two or three, right? I think we're the last one standing <laughs> by default. I think we're the only one really? that might actually yeah, get 250. Yeah, I saw that actually. Because yeah. there was one that was doing really well. Yeah, and then just kind of like... disappeared. <laughs> Taren reported yeah, they... He pointed the finger. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, I want you That's to name a... names. Yeah. He reported it to the head of, of unapple activities. <laughs> I think it doesn't doesn't necessarily mean that you know they're weak or lame or anything like no, that. No, no, no. That 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 we <laughs> if the we have committed to this course of action, like, no matter yeah, what. Yeah, yeah. We we are n- neurotic people. Yeah. <laughs> we just, yeah. just we'll just keep doing this kind of as uh, yeah, out of habit. And, yeah. and when we reach the two fifty, we'll come up with another two fifty. Um, action. <laughs> Andrew, did that did that other podcast end on episode number two hundred and fifty? I think, that, like, it's funny actually. A lot of a lot of them went that way. Like, they 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 would take a snapshot in time because yeah. they realized the insanity <laughs> of doing to what we're doing. Yeah. I think what you guys went. It doesn't matter if the movie's on the list or not. That was the end for you guys. You're locked in for life now. Yeah. Uh, well, that, to be fair, like again, yes, uh, and and no spoilers, but I am hoping that Super Babies, Baby Geniuses Two, will be the movie to kick off the second two fifty episode number two hundred and fifty one. You heard it here first. Um, but yeah, so the, <laughs> yep, very exciting. We'll be following our tenant episode with that, I think. Um, but yes, so that that is kind of where we are. But yes, so you would you would say yes then. You think it kind of it has a place on the Yeah, list. I guess. Do you know I wasn't aware of the thirty three minute sequence where there was no dialogue. <laughs> like after I, you'd I, watched it, like after like until Yeah. I I, I didn't pass any heed, like didn't didn't realise what they were doing. Um I was probably glad. Because I was, I I started watching this at about half three this morning. I kind of, I sort of woke up, as sometimes happens now that I'm old. Um, and it was like half three in the morning, and I just took out my phone and started watching it the way it's intended to be watched. The way Jules Dassan <laughs> on his deathbed was like, and I hear there's an yeah. iPhone coming out soon. A thing called I want my movies to be watchable on that, please. Well, like the uh, Apple could easily have an app that would be available to on all smart to televisions or whatever. Yeah. To let, to, yeah, yeah, but they don't. No, they they don't. they they insist that you buy like a a, a piece Apple of TV. hardware. Exactly. So that, I'm sure it may, may, maybe maybe they have reasons for that that they could give, but um Well, the reason is they, they want you to buy they, the hardware, Andrew. <laughs> Yeah, so like explain that to Margaret Vestager. Don't explain it to me. You know, the 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 um you know the 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 latest antitrust um uh, suit will be brought brought by a claimant who couldn't get onto his LG TV <laughs> to watch Rafifi. I like that. Big um, problem with this case is that nobody feels sorry for this guy. <laughs> <laughs> and we should note, by the way, that yes, Rafifi is quite difficult to get a hold of, actually. As Luke pointed out, it's only available in Kim Jong-un's DVD library and on Apple uh, on streaming services in the UK and Ireland. Um, so yes, that is it is it is a challenge to actually watch it, to be fair. Um, Kim Jong-un has his own uh, podcast as well, uh, <laughs> where, where where he's watching all of his father's movies. He invented podcasting. Yeah, and in, in, in he, he beat Christopher Lydon to it by like four months. In um in two thousand and three, yeah. 
Um, so, Andrew, do you think this belongs to the list of the 250 greatest movies? The question you started to answer before we ended up on this weird tangent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, kind of. I, 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 I feel like there needs to be some French New Wave movies. Um, I just French movies generally. Like, there, there, there's... We, we're lucky enough that we only get to see the good ones. Um, I think you remarked on that when we discussed, like, Argentinian cinema, where you're like, we've seen The Secrets in Our Eyes, we've seen Wild Tales. Is Argentinian cinema the best cinema in the world? And it's like... I feel like they make more than those two movies. I feel like there are more Argentinian <laughs> yeah. movies than just those two. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I the Irish make some good movies too, and there's maybe not enough of them on a the list. But um, but no, dude, for French French cinema is um, it de- de- deserves to be um, represented. There's kind of more recent stuff that I'd like to see on it. Like I love The Prophet by by um, Jacques Audiard, and and I think I've mentioned before that I really liked uh, The Diving Bell and The Butterfly. But it's not as if that didn't get loads of love at the time. So, But it just doesn't get talked as much about anymore. Yeah. So yeah, put it on the list. There's there's, there's probably plen- plenty of uh, American movies on there. Um, um, and you don't need any more. Um, put this on. It's a perfect movie, you know? Wow, okay. I love how like, casually you, you toss that off. It's like, just put it on. It's a perfect movie. Don't <laughs> worry, let's, let's move on. Um. I suppose you could have problems with it, but like you can't imagine somebody, well, unless you're the Catholic Indecency League. <laughs> um, I guess <laughs> Or the Motion Picture it. Herald. Um. Or, yeah, or Huac. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, it is worth noting, by the way, that there are 147 American movies on the 250 um, and only 10 French movies overall, which is interesting. We, we were going to originally just cover the American ones. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yes, and for myself, yes, I do think it belongs on the list. It is like the definitive heist movie. You can trace its influence absolutely everywhere uh, in the decades and years that followed. The Two Oceans 13, the Two Oceans uh, 11 movies, movies like even Brian De Palma's Mission Impossible, for example, arguably even the TV show Mission Impossible, for example. Um, it is absolutely everywhere. It's hard to find a heist movie that does not draw in some small way from this. Um, and also even I think historically, yes, it's existence as a statement and reminder that the blacklist was a thing that happened and was terrible and had horrific consequences and also as the arguably the first movie to defy the blacklist as well i think it has a place uh, in history and it kind of deserves uh, recognition and consideration uh, in those terms itself i also like ways of fear like the idea of it existing as a counterpoint to the hollywood cinema of the 40s and the 50s where you have this attempt to build an international european cinema that's almost like a counterpoint to hollywood that isn't quite you know, kind of like the art house that we would come to think of things like Bergman kind of later on or around this time, um, but is instead something that's aiming at kind of like being broad and crowd pleasing and satisfying. So, yes, for all those reasons, I would say yes. And Luke, is it on your own personal 250? Oh, yeah. I don't think you can have a film that you imported from Korea <laughs> um, in your in your DVD collection without it being in your, yeah, your top 250 movies. And it is, as you say, Darren, it is one that is... It's so influential on so many other movies that I love. You can't not on that basis have it have it on there, you know. So is it is it like is it among your favorites, or do you have like of its myriad grandchildren descendants? Is are there other movies that you prefer to it? Like how does this rank compared to something like say I suppose Out of Sight you could draw a connection to, but things like say Soderbergh's Ocean movies or whatever. Or um, 
Well, it's it's interesting because I kind of feel like with heist movies, as I say, it is very rare that people kind of. You, I don't think I've ever heard someone say that they explicitly don't like that kind of style of movie. It's like saying you don't like fun, but well, it's like saying you don't like ice cream. But there's different flavors of ice cream, you know. And what's one of the things that's really interesting about Rafifi is the way that it kind of branches off, uh, and like influences those kind of different different styles of kind of crime thriller and and, and heist film in different ways. And the way that it's kind of representative itself of those kind of different styles of, of, of heist movie are really interesting to me. So, yeah, uh, it's, uh, you know, I, I'm very wishy-washy, Darren, when it comes to favorites and all that. But it's it's certainly up there. Absolutely. Um, all right. And, and Andrew, what about yourself? Would it be on my own? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it might. There's, there's um, it's... It's maybe I I I I like the kind of the um uh, craft of it I guess but the, 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 there was um there was maybe a simplicity to it that was perhaps to its credit but that I didn't in, in enjoy like that I wanted more kind of um complexity like the, the, this this movie is very straightforward we've said it's a heist movie you kind of know what was um what that entails. Um, what you're what you're getting from 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 that and maybe 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 the maybe because of how influential this was um in terms of kind of establishing a genre although i'm sure there's probably other kind of claims um to that um it just means that 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 like there, there there's not a lot a, a lot else going on in it and maybe that's just my preference. I, 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 I guess I, I wanted, like I, I, you know, I, I, I like movies like this. And I said it's a perfect movie because that that's like the best way to do a perfect movie, is to 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 keep it simple. Like I think that's why Jaws is great. It's kind of like there's a shark, we gotta get him. Um, and um, but it, but yeah, it, it's it's. It's not speaking to me as such, I guess. I think yeah. that makes a lot of sense, yeah. And I, uh, I would kind of be almost in the same boat to continue the unnecessary Jaws metaphor. Um, I do think that uh, I, I can see why it is, and there's a lot that I like about it. I have some issues with its second half when it kind of becomes a different sort of film slightly, and it feels often like... The, you know, the story we told about him adding the like 33 minutes in the middle of Dead Silence because it was like, well, I've taken out so much from the novel. It feels a bit like the kind of like final act feels like, yeah, well, we need an ending on this. So we'll stick a, a final act on there. And it feels and again, because well, because we've seen so many again, we'll probably talk about it more specifically when we get to the spore zone. But like we've seen so many movies like this. Andrew's right. It's 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 unfair to complain that this you know, doesn't have the luxury of building on itself to do other stuff with it. So I'm not complaining at all. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's just for me, it maybe didn't resonate as much as, as it might have. Uh, but it's still a stunningly well-made film. Those sequences of the robbery and it it has, and again, these are things I think we've talked about in the podcast before, and we'll probably talk about in the spoiler zone as well when we talk about like what heist movies are and why heist movies are great. Um, but it, it has those sequences that, I am particularly partial to of people who are very good at their job being very good at their job 
enjoying being very good at their job, working with other people who are also very good at their job, and accomplishing something together through teamwork, uh, which is very much like Darren Catnip when it comes to, I love a good montage. Um, I am all over watching people who are good at what they do, doing what they're good at. Um, so I like that aspect of it as well. But yeah, I, I don't know if it would make my own personal 250. But that's a, you know, again, it's a very personal metric and it's hardly a, a damning indictment of the movie. All right, then in final question, uh, before we jump into this war zone. So whether or not uh, listeners have access to the library of a, a late departed Korean dictator or they just want to watch it on Apple, uh, Luke, would you recommend that they pause the podcast and stream Rafifi to a local device? Uh, yeah, I mean, if they can. <laughs> it's not it's not easy to do, but uh if 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 you do i don't think you'll regret it i think it is as as andrew says it is very straightforward uh, and like if you're if you're not particularly even if you don't particularly watch older movies or international movies that often uh i think it is simple enough that you can kind of get it and if you do like those kind of movies i think you're gonna you've probably had this on your own to watch list for a while if you've not already seen it uh so yeah it's definitely i think worth one of those that's worth seeking out yeah welcome to discovering why darren scheduled this episode um <laughs> but yes i i would agree with that actually and and something i would kind of add to that is we mentioned this men- is our difficult to watch week yeah <laughs> and this week and next week will be difficult to watch um and then the week after that will be difficult to want to watch but we'll come back to that when we get to the end of the podcast um, but i i do think there is something in what luke said there in terms of it being accessible we mentioned the 33 silent 33 minute silent sequence but large passages of this movie pass in complete silence, trusting the actors to physically convey what they need to convey, trusting the camera to communicate what needs to be communicated in a scene, allowing actors to sit in silence or move in silence um, while showcasing what you're meant to be looking at. And again, this is the thing where I mentioned this feeling like an attempt by Europe to create a pan-European market um, to counteract Hollywood. This is a very audience-friendly movie in terms of, well, I don't like reading subtitles. That kind of, like, you know, that that uh, Bong Joon-ho remark about the one-inch high barrier of subtitles. Because there aren't actually that many subtitles here because there isn't that much dialogue because it's very consciously designed not to be that kind of movie. Like, there's a big musical sequence in the middle of this, which you also don't need to read the subtitles to because, like, the the entire name of the movie means absolutely nothing. It's just gobbledygook. Darren, that is not true. And you 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 are um you are preempting. Oh okay. I'm, oh sorry. Okay, okay, okay. I'm gonna back off. <laughs> I'm gonna back off. What gonna, is Rafifi about? I would also say, off. Darren, um that 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 it should be pointed out that yeah, for as much as this film doesn't kind of lay it on thick with the the anti uh capitalist, anti American stuff when it could have done so one thing it does lay it on thick uh in 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 opposition to what you what you just said there is that you know people that only speak one language <laughs> are uh, idiotic <laughs> you know uh, uh ruinous <laughs> oh, no. will bring the whole house tumbling down yeah. tied to the rotten foundations underneath this stage um sorry Bumbling. yes not to- <laughs> Again, not to preempt. 
<laughs> not to preempt any of the discussion or hint at any possible spoilers. Uh, but again, I think that is also very consciously layered with subtext and meaning, which we'll get back to. But I, I do honestly think that it is an accessible movie. If you are somebody who does feel like you don't necessarily enjoy reading subtitles or you have difficulty with watching a movie in a different language, I think this is a very accessible type of that movie. There is very there's relatively little dialogue it's very easy to follow it's very cinematic in its storytelling so i think i think it is accessible in those terms but sorry andrew would you recommend listeners pause the podcast and watch rafifi i would i would like it doesn't matter if you're real stupid you <laughs> wow okay all right that was not what i was saying but okay fine go with it no i'm sorry wow um, i would i would recommend that people watch this movie it's it's a it's a what do you call it i'm wearing a baseball cap it's a home run um, <laughs> it's an audio medium andrew but i do appreciate that you called it before you... <laughs> this is just for our only fans andrew is only um, no, wearing yeah. a baseball cap <laughs> I I I would recommend people watch this. Like I I I can't I can't like I I think what what Luke said about ice cream kind of um uh makes sense. Like if if uh, if um, like even if you're lactose intolerant, there there's you know you want to you want there, to eat there, ice cream. There there are varieties now. Yeah yeah. So do do do. Do watch this movie if you're a person who can watch movies. And for myself, yes, I would wholeheartedly recommend watching it. It is available on Apple, on iTunes, um, and in Kim Jong-un's DVD collection, which I like is now a running bit on this podcast. Um, so yeah, that with that in mind, then we'll segue neatly into the spoiler zone. Vous avez La zone de spoilers. Um, sorry. And you said you didn't speak any French. Um, That's not by the way. I know it's not. That was the joke. Um, so, Luke. That is the joke. Is the, I am standing in front of a red brick wall with a spotlight on me. Thank you very much. So, Luke, what is Rafifi about for you? Rafifi is about rough and tumble, Darren. And pitch battle. And, and oh. No. It's about riding, yeah. It's about how dangerous, <laughs> sexy, and uh, yeah, uh, criminals are really no. For me, like Rafifi is, as I said, there's kind of these like there's different kind of styles really of kind of heist, kind of crime thriller kind of films, and you have the kind of serious, kind of tense, taut kind of psychological kind of. Uh, heist thrillers like 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 Melville's films like the Circular Rouge and, 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 and films like that or like like Widows you know and then you have the kind of the sexy fun caper uh, like Out like the Oceans movies or like yeah or like the Great Muppet Caper or you know kind of sexy <laughs> fun <laughs> sexy Muppets. movies like that any yeah anything with little Miss um, Piggy in it am I right? Oh, yeah. I, but um what to me like Rafifi is this is this kind of noir story where like the the the, the protagonist from one movie uh one of, one of those styles of movies kind of brings kind of supporting characters from the other kind of that movie in on a job and it's it is this kind of um this kind of clash between between those two those two uh 
there's two kind of styles really for 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 tony the 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 film's main character like he's kind of drawn into the for such a dare character he is seemingly drawn into the rafifi of it all uh because he the reason that he commits this this ultimately botched uh, heist is because he says a man's got to live and there's a real sense that he doesn't have much else to live for other than the thrill of pulling a, a job like this off you know I think it's more than that. I think when I think the irony in him saying a man's got to live is that he wants to die or end up in prison, like you do, 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 do that that um, kind of he has just gotten released from prison, and that he's realised that there's nothing for him in in in, in this world. Yeah, oh, yeah. And that, that that like like you know that that. That the heist isn't going to be like some sort of a, a consolation to him. That it, it's just kind of you know re- return me to hopelessness or or kill me. It's yeah, um, because what what is what is distinct, I suppose, about Rafifi compared to other similar films is that even though Tony is the senior member of this crew, and even though he's a central character, the heist isn't his idea. Um, he's kind of pulled in by the other characters to whom this is like a like enticing kind of big stakes kind of fun kind of well even uh, afterwards they all have sequences where they talk about what they're going to do yeah yeah and tony's like eh, i don't know and and, and tony like he's just really doing this because this is all that he uh has and it's like he is essentially caught before he's even started and he's kind of he's this like yeah as you say andrew this kind of empty man like he's 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 kind of a husk uh of, of, of 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 himself you know uh, and that that to me that contrast between the kind of usual uh, archetypes that you see in, in films like this and the kind of usual motivations that you see for characters in this and then what you actually see in Tony throughout the film is one of the kind of the big uh, big draws of it you know or one of the things that I find particularly interesting about it. Um, it is worth noting actually when we talk about that aspect of the movie. We mentioned that obviously the movie was controversial in the States because of the, the use of Desan, um and like the crediting of Desan for his work on the movie and, and the violation of kind of like Who Walk in the Blacklist. It was also because this uh, to American audiences was perceived as a wildly immoral or amoral caper movie, particularly compared to what was being produced by the code or the Hayes code um, during the kind of same period in Hollywood history. So you had people like the the decency, the League of Decency uh, protesting it because they felt that it was unwholesome. It was corrupting. You actually had several countries banning it because they thought that it encouraged crime. And in fact, actually, there were a number of heists conducted in Mexico and in Newbury, in Newbury in the UK. It absolutely does, by the way. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> but like, people, people like actually copied the movie. There were like copycat crimes of Rafifi committed. Like, like in 1979 in Newbury in the UK, somebody looked at Rafifi and said, we should do that and managed to successfully pull we, it off, which is stunning. We can, stunning. we can talk about that a bit more, maybe when we get to the actual oh, the, heist. Yeah. But I can just say from my own experience, like, I, I, apart from heist movies, like I kind of like reading about actual heists and like actual kind of jewel thieves and cat burglars and things like that. And the overriding feeling that you that you get when you see those or read those stories is that like I'm in the wrong job, man. And like they always get caught. <laughs> they always get caught in the end uh, in real life. That that's one of those things that like 
But you've learned all those lessons well, from that's them. that's the thing. Maybe. You're like, they just do <laughs> I wouldn't do uh, that. this or whatever. And like, Darren, you, you mentioned like the Hayes Code and stuff like that. And it's one of those things that, again, looking back on, like 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 you were saying, Andrew, about HUAC and about like the, the idea that like at the time people would have had certain attitudes to it that we should keep in mind today. Uh, like the Hayes Code, it's easy to look back at that and go, oh, yeah, and they made it so that like every bad guy has to get caught in the end. And it's like, what the... <laughs> Stuff like that, what happens at the end of Rafifi is usually how this stuff plays out, you know? And, like, I mean, we should note as well, like, I was watching this for the first, I was watching this for the first time for the podcast, and at the end, it has a very Wages of Fear ending, where it involves the main character careening wildly down the road, and part of me was wondering if we were going to get a Wages of Fear type ending, where the character, having, like, successfully got the money and rescued the kid, was going to be involved in a horrific car crash that would kill all of them. Um, and I have to admit, I was surprised that, like, you know, where the, yeah, where the car doesn't crash and the child doesn't get catapulted <laughs> yeah, yeah. into, like, some kind of monument yeah. where it's Im- impaled. Um, yeah, because that's the thing. It's like, this is a, this is a, this is Because a... there's no dynamite no. in the car. Because <laughs> so... this, this is, like, this is a dark and serious film. And, like, as we mentioned, it was kind of a shock to, to American audiences uh, at the time for how dark and gritty and grounded and brutal it was. Uh, but, like, coming out of it, like, compared to some of the French cinema I've watched, I was like, well, the kid lived at the end. This is practically an upper as far as these sorts of movies go. This is happier than I expected the ending to be. He he could have really got Final Destination 2 there, but uh, <laughs> they, <laughs> they, they bottled it. That, bottled it. It's- that whole journey as, like, the life is draining out um, of, of, of Tony. Um, of Tony. Um, the child is offered to drive. <laughs> And he, he he has said, yeah, yeah, maybe later. And it's like, this would be a perfect time now. Just let the child take the wheel. It couldn't um, possibly end worse. There's a tragic irony to it, really, though, um, in that one of the reasons that things go so south at the at the end for, for Tony and the, the different characters is Tony's insistence that the, the child could potentially... Uh, kind of sell them out in a sense because it's like even though he's five he's still got like eyes and, and ears and a, and a tongue as he says so like he could eat, he could he could incriminate them and you see in that that sequence how how wrong he was because like the child is five and an idiot and like <laughs> this man the, the child has been kidnapped has seen multiple people die and is speeding down the road as 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 Uncle Tony bleeds out next to him and he's having the time of his life the kid is so thrilled. See, in Korean cinema, I couldn't help but think of like the image of him in the cowboy suit because he's dressed like a cowboy with a little plastic revolver, and the shot of like the brother is at Pierre, like lying with the giant plastic revolver next to him. I kind of loved, but I was thinking of that sequence from the end of Parasite, where the kid is like with the TP and the cowboy suit as everything. Oh, is Oh, another one of the great idiotic kids from cinema. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> But the, the, the adults just kind of ascribe intelligence <laughs> to children that isn't there. They, they, like, like, like at the end, it, it doesn't come up in the, it doesn't come up in the in the subtitles. But the the one of the cops turns to the kid and says, um, "Nice shooting, son. What's your name?" <laughs> um, 
Obligatory Robocop reference. <laughs> if there is a silver lining to, to this kind of dark noir film that, that has this, this tragic ending, it's that that kid is going to be fine. He's not going to carry yeah. any, any trauma. He's still plastic. He has no real understanding of what, what happened. No. You know? no, he's still going to be dressed like a cowboy as an adult. And again, it is that kind of weird, you mentioned the kind of like sense of America or kind of like the weird attitude they have towards foreigners that runs through some of the film. Because this is, it's a very international cast. Because um, obviously like Jean Servais, who plays Tony, he's a Belgian actor. Um, the character of Joe is a young Swedish gangster, but he's played by an Austrian um, Mario, because of course he's called Mario, is a happy-go-lucky Italian, and Césaire, the safecracker, who literally cannot speak and barely speak a word of French, is played by Jules Dassin, the director. That's Jules Dassin, the director, playing Césaire, the expert safecracker, which is fascinating. Now, oh, one, wow. I, Macaroni. Yeah, um, I love, I love, by the way, that they say you look like you could be a model, and it's like, thank you. That that was exactly the line reading that I wanted. Yeah, he's got to, he's he's got such a kind of comic relief look to him, and yet like the the, <laughs> the entire thing goes the, so badly. No, but like the the temptress kind of uh, lounge singer <laughs> character is like totally enamored with this. Like, uh, I, I I don't want to I don't want to shame this. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, he 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 has an edge to him. But like she. Like when 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 he gets insulted, there is a kind of like an air of menace to his response. It's, True, it's like he feels like he's going to throw down, and he does have a more so, serious air to him. It's just she yeah, sings a whole song. He has complexity that a woman can appreciate. Like like the, you know, he's 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 uh, fun. He's um, Italian. He doesn't speak French. She's she's attracted <laughs> to his repeat. Yeah. yeah, exactly. His his rough and tumble. Um, but no, like I mean, and again, it is it is interesting that like Desan cast himself in that role, barely able to speak French as a character, barely able to speak French. Uh, but again, can I ask, Darren? Uh, do you actually not know what Rafifi means? No, it Rafifi... feels like in, in in the song anyway. In the context of the song, I don't know what Rafifi actually means. It probably okay. means nothing. But the, I feel like the song is fairly clear about what Rafifi is, yeah. right? Okay, Rafifi is an, an untranslatable term. The closest anybody can come to rendering it in English is either, as, as Luke suggested earlier, rough and tumble, or pitched battle. Um, but yes, yes. Yeah. Riding. What? What? It's it's it it's making the beast with two backs. It's making the beast, yeah. I would argue. I think it's just making the beast. It doesn't matter whether the beast has two backs or a gun or whatever. Yeah, I it's suppose just it's, the beast. It's, it's 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 hard to translate, I suppose, because it's like the that kind of uh, nebulous space between uh, sex and danger that I think the French have a particularly. I mean, you, you know, you, you know, the translation of their word for for for, for orgasm is le petit mort. Uh, but it's just the song Rafifi that, that that comes up in the film. Uh, it is a bop, but it's also it's part of that subgenre of songs. Like it, it is it is a ballsy move to to make a song about a nonsense word, uh, where the the whole <laughs> the whole gist of the song is that like you're the idiot for not knowing what it means. <laughs> <laughs> like most of most of the verses of the song are like, what do you mean you don't know what? Like oh my god! Like it's like cats, yeah. really. Yeah. <laughs> let's 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 offer a slightly different distinction. Just when you think you've got a grasp on what Rafifi is, let's let's talk. Let's take it to a cinema. Let's go to a cinema now. There's Rafifi in a cinema. 
Wait, no, no, hold on. My 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 guy has he's Rafifi in the streets. No, he's also Rafifi in the sheets. He's just Rafifi everywhere. Um what I do think like one of the things that I admire about that is again, this feels like very much engaging with like what was happening in American cinema around the same time. I think of like the the plot the put the blame on Mame sequence from like Gilda, for example, right? Like which is a very very horny horny sequence. But I like that the you know Dasan and the French were like, okay, you know what? Let's have a song and dance number in the middle of our own movie. And instead of like just implying the amount of carnal activity that's going on, let's just make it as explicit as possible while using a nonsense word to describe it. But which I kind of admire. And what I what I like about it as well, because it is this kind of like it it is kind of uh, it really kind of ties the film together. Because it is kind of central, the, the the song. Like, it isn't superfluous, I, I, I think, anyway. No, no, it's not. Um, and, like, the, the, the idea that, like, oh, crime and these kind of, like, rough-and-tumble, uh, sketchy characters are enticing and, like, exciting and thrilling and stuff like that. Uh, I don't think... I don't think... I wouldn't call, like, Rufifi, like, a, a deconstruction or anything like that, but it does kind of show a contrast there in that... Uh, like, for Mario and for Joe... Uh, are both very handsome men <laughs> uh, but they're kind of <laughs> equally handsome men um, well like joe is basically james dean but but austria yes uh, and and mario is basically billy zane uh and and tony is basically ronald reagan like there is a kind of a he, he prison changed tony he's a very sad looking man um yeah, the son is more like a ron howard <laughs> At least, at least, our, I was about to say, hold on, yeah, no, leave it at Ron, our, leave it at our, Ron. Yeah, our, <laughs> you were going to mention his other brother, um, but but I was being kind, but like that that song, you know, is coming from from someone that is at a remove from the actualities of that of that lifestyle, and you know that like Mario say has this like uh, this kind of young lover that you know they're they're all having a great time and stuff like that. Uh, there's kind of like what I find interesting is that, as I say, there's kind of your serious kind of heist movie, and then there's your more kind of capery one. And like each kind of member of the crew is one step further from one end of the spectrum to the other to me. In that, like, uh, Desan's character, uh, the safe cracker, the Italian, yeah, he's like a very, uh, Cesare. he's like a very comedic but like kind of a more well, he's a character, character. yeah he's a character. yeah yeah uh mario is a bit more uh serious and a bit more professional but also still quite lighthearted. uh joe he's having a lot of fun yeah, yeah. yeah. i mean we get to see some bath play we get to see some bath play like uh like yeah joe, like, joe is then, sorry andrew no no i beg your pardon I, all i was going to say was like how much fun um that 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 all was um yeah um joe joe is who this movie would be about if it was made in america like he's this like young clever uh and like he's family man yeah exactly yeah and tony is uh and like it is what like you you do see the argument that people would have had at 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 the time for this being this like uh like kind of beyond the pale kind of kind of kind of story because tony is a terrible person (laughs) he's a dour miserable Awful man, uh, and uh, and the, the so the the Who's reality introduced like reconnecting with his lover, beating her with a belt. Yeah, like, that's as your it, reestablishing as it in on the photo of them in in kind of better days. 
but he's he's maybe an okay godfather. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like, I mean, I feel like the fact that like all this ends up with his godson like kidnapped and like his his the parents of his godson, well, the father is godson brutally murdered. I feel like maybe he, that he kind wasn't, of impinges a, a lot of a lot of the lifting, like parenting wise, wasn't being done by Joe. I mean, That's they, he was pre- pre- presumably doing um, a lot of the providing. Um, like the the big the big loss is the big um, uh, purse full of jewels, um, <laughs> like rather rather than Joe himself. But but um, but just to drag Joe's son a little bit more, you know you know in like how in the Irishman it's like Joe Pesci gets the you know gets the kid the, the best toys and stuff, and they're not having it like. Uh, uh, the daughter, like, but but Joe's kid is just beside himself with these toys. Like he's loving the criminal lifestyle. <laughs> but yeah, like Tony is this is this example of how that isn't as kind of fun and, and and amazing as as it can be cracked up to be. And like, there's a great, I kind of only really noticed it really on 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 this playthrough or or, or on on this watch. Like, but there is a real contrast. Uh, just before they they kind of pull off the heist, you kind of see that that woman kind of humming along to the song again. Uh, and there's kind of a montage where like they're all heading off to, to 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 go to the heist and like Joe's wife you see that kind of like oh he's on the job again kind of resigned kind of uh exclusion and and, and kind of disappoint disappointment and, and anxiety and like from even from Mario's uh uh Mrs. there there is that kind of like feeling of exclusion and concern and, and, and stuff like that. And then obviously, uh, 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 I can't remember the name of uh, Tony's ex, uh, Maddo. Maddo. Yes. Yeah. 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 There, there, again, there's, you kind of see the, the kind of dread there and there's the reality of it, I think is more present for those characters. Again, again, to various degrees, uh, there is kind of a, a sliding scale there. You know? I mean, it is it is worth noting, as much as we talk about the movie, you know, like being very European in a sense, like it is it is very much a crime doesn't pay movie. I mean, famously, in response to the Catholic League of Decency protesting the movie, they stuck a quote from Proverbs uh, in front of it. It actually, they added a prelude to the movie and the actual quote, which I'll find here, uh, which is, when the wicked are multiplied, crime shall be multiplied but the just shall see their downfall. That was apparently put in front of American airings of the, uh, or broadcasts of the movie in order to underscore its kind of philosophical points or moral outlook. But even without, even without that though, I think like the movie goes out of its way to have characters and particularly the women like Maddo, who is the former lover of Tony calls him out. Louise has this big moment, like when Tony has been kidnapped when she's talking to Joe and she's saying, all these men around you grew up in poverty, but none of them became criminals and hoods and outlaws. I used to think that that was tough, or you think that that's tough, but that I'm thinking maybe the other people were tougher. So you do have, and again, you're right, calling it a deconstruction is probably unfair, but you do have like a sense of a moral framework here where crime doesn't pay because the money gets lost and everybody involved in this crime ends up brutally brutally dead um at the end of except it all for, except for tonio one guy except no no the fence is not, it not, not Tony. the fence but even the fence takes a feckin' loss the fence is like yeah we're gonna have to cut those diamonds down i mean you know crime doesn't pay and... oh yeah i didn't understand that the day they've handed over the jewels to the point they just, they just have a suitcase full of money yeah, yeah? 
yeah, yeah so so your your your, so your point they, of view is like so why why do you need to bother me with this that's that's your business you take your fucking loss <laughs> yeah. do i come in here and talk to you about how difficult it was for us to break in there no i don't i don't want to hear about it thank you <laughs> yeah yeah but the 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 defense did web out of it like they yeah that's the spin-off that was the sequel um, well, it's one of those things with fences. with uh, with dual with dual uh, heists and that. Like, generally, you aren't going to get market value for for kind of diamonds and jewels because you will have to cut them because that makes it a lot harder. Them harder to identify to, to identify them. Uh, but again, there's there's a there's a, a kind of tragic irony and a kind of a a contrast between the different characters because. This this wasn't Tony's idea, but if they had just stuck to the original heist that that Mario and Joe had planned, which was just to take a few of the jewels from the window, probably would have all gone a lot smoother. But Tony kind of brings him into this this much bigger, higher stakes job, and it, it it's not out of a kind of uh, there is no kind of fun and like sense of like you know we can do an even better job out of it. It's because Tony is feeling petty and miserable and <laughs> more self-destructive, and his self-destruction kind of is ruinous for these people that he uh, portends to to really care about and want to look after. Yeah, that that's the really irresponsible thing. It's like ruin your own life. But yeah, he he is. Um... He is the one who 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 pushes them to 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 kind of take on this extra. In fairness, he does also tell them like, "Don't show any cash." But, but, but kind <laughs> of, don't make me get all Jimmy Conway on you. Downfall, yeah, of, yeah. The, of the crime is that you know that the, the the heist goes off fairly well, but then um, the 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 other gangster. So the Reme Grutter. Yeah, it's the ring. Uh, yeah, so it's Caesar gives the ring to the the nightclub singer Vivian. Vi- Vi- Viviana. But but yeah. but Caesar wouldn't even have to have been there because he's the safecracker if they didn't expand the scope of the job. Yeah. Again, yeah. if they if they had just stuck to to something simple, and again, uh, not not if you if you ever hear about uh, any any jewel. Uh, thefts in the Dublin area. Uh, no, you didn't. But uh, based on my research, the the small scale jobs from places like that tend to, go, to, to tend to go off pretty smoothly because the places tend to be insured, and yeah. it's not really worth kind of going after small. That that is the advice from Luke. Luke and don't touch done. <laughs> is that, that 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 is is it is it safe to say that that that's your Caesar, the moment, eh? Yeah, well, it, it's a hard business to crack. Ah, um, uh, ah, sorry, <laughs> sorry, I, I, I'm just waiting for a lucky break here uh, to enter the conversation. But what I will say is that, like, it is when you mentioned Caesar ruining it for everybody. There's a bit to unpack there. Um, but the thing, the thing that I really love is the fact that it's not anything from the safe. Like, he takes the ring separately because he notices the ring being put in the drawer when he's scoping the joint. So it isn't even, like, anything from the safe. It isn't any of the $240 million worth of jewellery taken from the safe. It's something that he went out of his way to kind of pick up and take with him uh, on his way out the door without even thinking about it, which is... One thing I found interesting about the... the there is some placement in the film there there's like a um 
I, 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 it may be unintentional, just like a Martel reference, but, but the, but the, actually, the jewelry store that they rob is an actual jewelry store. Mappin and Webb are a, 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 a brand of jewelry stores that, 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 that one could, you know, uh, um, <laughs> rob if one felt the that need. One, that one could heist. What's the verb? Is it knock off? Do you knock off jewelry stores? Is that what you so, say? Luke? So I've heard, Andrew. So I've, <laughs> but 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 that's one of the things that that as you say, Andrew. Like it is it is quite a straightforward story. They see a jewelry store, they want to rob it. They do. <laughs> but there's a real um, and we did we did allude to this earlier. But one of the things I admire so much about the heist sequence is yes, from a technical filmmaking standpoint, it's it's, it's incredible. But it's also got a really heartening kind of do-it-yourself sense, you know. There's no you like you don't need an EMP bomb or a world-class Chinese acrobat to to pull off a heist worth hundreds of, of millions. You can do it just with simple items from around the house: wash yeah. a bottle, some PVA glue, <laughs> you know. Uh, the umbrella. The umbrella. Uh-huh. Yeah, I love yeah. the umbrella. It's it's it's, but it, it is as we kind of said earlier. You do kind of watch that sequence and go, I can, like, yeah, I can, I can do that. <laughs> I've got an umbrella <laughs> and a chisel yeah. and a hammer. Well, that that's the thing. It's like it's funny though because on the one hand, it's an ad for mapping and web because <laughs> they use the best safes, <laughs> but you can still get into them. Like, or maybe they just figure like we're. Not not everyone who watches this movie is going to rob um our one of our jewelry stores, but they will at least be aware of our jewelry store. <laughs> that's, um, that's your Don Draper pitch. That's the idea there. We yeah. they'll remember that they want to rob that jewelry store. Whether or not they will or not, that's a question for another day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They'll they'll do the second best thing, which is go in and exchange money yeah, for, for jewelry. For the jewelry. Yeah. It is total product placement though, because they they do make a point of at the beginning going like mapping and web but my god they're like the best jewelry store in town they're like oh my god their stuff is so amazing we could you know and then they lay it out like on the table so you can admire it and you you have to say that it's very hard to rob us as well that's in the terms and conditions we want your robbers to know how hard it is to rob us as well rod harrod's voiceover just comes in it's a wonderful jewelry store <laughs> but to bring it back to what Luke was kind of talking about there, one of the things that I actually love, like, and I think it's it's more generally about heist movies, and it's why Clint, sorry, <laughs> Clint, Clint Howard. <laughs> right. um, but one of the things that I love about sorry. like heist movies is is that idea of it being about watching people who are very good at what they do, because so much of this movie is just watching people in silence do things cleverly, and again, a lot of it is is like the way in which. They, they test the equipment to show that it works and they test the equipment to figure out how it works. And it's very much kind of a problem solving movie. Like one of my favorite shots and it isn't the use of the umbrella. It's the bit before they use the umbrella where they test the umbrella like in the apartment above to make sure they can open it remotely. And it's like, oh, I know what they're going to do with that. It's like really, really cool just to watch people do stuff like that in a way that is visually interesting because i reckon you know like yeah i feel like if you made a movie like rafifi about the process of like being a film critic you i feel it would be very hard to do a 35 minute sequence in the middle in complete silence in which a film critic criticizes something and have it look cool you know 
I feel like some 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 of the some of the stuff in that scene is that the like is I suppose you could make an argument for why the characters in the movie are doing what they're doing, but the real reason for them doing what they're doing is so that the audience yes. kind of like understands what's going on. Yeah. So like 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 why are they why are they why are they tripping the alarm first? And then, kind of like um, trying to stop uh, it, turning it off, because that's not what they're going to do. They're, you know, they're 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 going to find a way of stopping it and then trick the alarm. Um, uh, but yeah, it, 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 and and the heist movies are a very cinematic way of doing that because it, it's very much show don't tell. It allows you to have these sequences without dialogue. So instead of saying, well, you know, you need to get in there, and you need to block it, and you need to put wax on it to stop the kind of alarm thing from hitting it. They actually, so they just show you, they show it ringing. They show the character using wax to block it. And they show that once the wax has blocked it, it doesn't make the noise anymore. It, it's very, very, very interesting, like as a cinematic tool to show and don't tell how you do this thing. I, I Again, it, it's stunningly well constructed. Totally. And it is like, that's the thing that people, that that's the expected that, that heist movies have that make them that genre that you so rarely hear people kind of, uh, kind of like every everyone likes a good heist movie, you know, whether it is the kind of Ocean's Eleven style or or something more serious. And it it isn't something that's confined to that genre. It, as you say, Darren, like pro- problem solving, like it it the, people like those kinds of movies because they are so satisfying. And the 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 words that are so often used to describe them are like oh slick and smart and sophisticated, but often it's 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 a lot simpler than that, you know. And it is that satisfaction of, of, of watching because when you think of the things that like engage a viewer and kind of pull a, a viewer so often what people gravitate towards is uh, like sex, you know, or the kind of, you know, you're, you're pulled in by things like that. Or like if something is funny, you're going to have a visceral reaction. If something is scary, you're going to have a visceral reaction. But we are like we it is problem solving, Darren. We are problem solving mammals. And there is a thing that lights up in your brain when you see someone else uh, figure something out uh, and you're figuring it out as well, you know, you watching, watching heist movies played on screen. There's this primal bit of your brain that goes, wait a minute, we can make fire. Like, it, you know, <laughs> well, no, that's exactly uh, like the moment where they're trying to figure out the level of pressure that will set off the alarm. Like, yeah. The way yeah. in which that shot with the low angles. And I know obviously this predates 2001 space odyssey, but when I was watching it, the sequence I was thinking yeah. was the monkeys figuring out how to use bones because it, it's very much like a how much pressure is that too much pressure that's enough pressure that's the right pressure and it's like yes i understand how this works now to to to, to compare to another crime movie there's uh in to live and die in la like that that's a great movie and it's it's famous for this kind of extended uh chase scene sequence but my favorite scene in it is uh willem dafoe uh uh with the money like making the actually showing in intricate detail how he counterfeits the money it's really interesting and satisfying and pulls you in even though not much is happening <laughs> yeah and it's completely inessential to the movie that you're watching you could handle it with a line of dialogue like uh, and it like it's an 80s movie so you could just as easily have somebody go willem dafoe this guy's the best but <laughs> instead <laughs> It shows you that uh, visually, and you have a much deeper uh, sense of that character from that. You know, someone says, someone says, like, Willem Dafoe's on this job. 
He was in Platoon. <laughs> but, but again, like, like, and again, not to talk, not to derail this into a discussion of To Live and Die and Die in LA, which is a masterpiece um, and deserves more recognition. But like, I love that it, it does the most cynical 80s version of what we talked about there of like watching somebody who's good at their job, which is like, it shows you that like Willem Dafoe is a masterpiece artist. He is like, he's beautiful. He's got incredible skill with like the, the art and the brush and the pen. And it's just like, yes, you can see him doing this. This is how he does it. But also because this is the 80s and people want to make money, he's really just using it for this incredibly mundane, soul-destroying, just making fake copies of money, of dollar bills. That's what he's doing at the moment, which is, again, a very 80s riff on this, watching people who are good at their jobs. It's a very comfortable film, though. Like, it is is the It is... Rafifi, but with a, a an eighties coat of paint on it, really, it is a dare, miserable, <laughs> cynical uh, uh, movie. That's that's very professional. Rafifi with cocaine instead of heroin. <laughs> yeah. um, um, and also, like while we're talking about heist movies, um, this is probably a nice way to come back to this because we did kind of allude to there being subtext or ways of reading into this. Uh, one of the reasons why I would argue, like heist movies are, and con movies, are typically read as metaphors for things like filmmaking because obviously like they're movies that as we discussed tend to be about how people who are good at their jobs do their jobs and the people who are making movies about these people who are good at their jobs doing their jobs their jobs is filmmaking so you tend to have like the oceans movies tend to have this performativity and can be read as metaphors for filmmaking things like inception can be read as a gigantic metaphor for filmmaking and there's you know arguably an element of that at play with Rafifi where you can read things like Tony's attitude kind of coming into this, which is, I don't really want to do this, but I kind of, you know, I don't know how to do anything else. I'm disillusioned. I've been through the ringer. This is what I do. This is what I'm professionally. It's just gambling. Gambling until you lose. Yeah, but but I mean, it's what it's 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 like the the I, I think the goal for the goal for him isn't to win. Yeah, but it's to keep doing. Well, he needs to keep doing it, basically, because he yeah. And that is that's one of the things that you can kind of think is just like uh, a straightforward kind of movie character motivation. But again, it is quite common with actual, uh, like maybe not criminals in general, but thieves of this nature, uh, that they do kind of keep going and going and going, not out of a financial necessity always, but out of something. Uh, more innate. Kind of diff- yeah, yeah, and, and and kind of more of the actual act of doing it uh, is what they uh, get into, well, rather than the reward. Well, what I, what I was making the point though is that like like Dasan has talked about making this movie in in ways that like remind me a lot of how Tony approaches this job, which is like I was in Paris. I've been in Paris for two years. I didn't speak French. I needed money, and these people came to me with us with a book. I read the book. It was unfilmable it was a terrible 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 book so naturally needing the money i said okay i will rewrite it from scratch we'll take the source material we'll do something that is intimate and infinitely more complicated i will insert myself into this in a way that is much more complicated than it needs to be i will rebuild it from the ground up not because i have any like innate attraction to the idea of it but simply because i need something to do and I also need some money to continue to live or whatever. And that, you know, arguably while feeling like disillusioned and alienated and kind of chewed out in the way that Tony does. And you, I think you can read it that way. And the way in which like Dasan casts himself as Caesar, like, and again, I think Luke kind of alluded to this earlier, 
if you wanted to. And Dasan has said this is the only part of the movie that he considers to be autobiographical. The only part of the movie that he considers to be an explicit commentary on the blacklist and his, his kind of history with Huak. But the idea that, you know, Dasan himself plays Cesar, a character who names names and who the audience watches through the eye of the camera getting brutally murdered for the act of naming names. Because you do get a point of view shot. You get It's almost like a first person shooter. You see the hand come out of the bottom corner of the screen holding a gun and shoot him a couple of times. And, and Cesar is very much like, yeah, I deserve this. <laughs> <laughs> You see, like you, you see Tony's life bar at the bottom of the screen. As well. <laughs> it just kind of flashing red at the corners as he gets kind of later on. But no, like, I, like I, I think there is something in that. Like, and Dasan, to his credit, avoided like casting Americans as the villains because he didn't want it to be red too much as a screw you guys. And he cast himself. He cast himself as the guy who names names, the guy who like rats out other people in order to protect himself. There's a, there's a few interesting things there in that. Yeah, like Cesar yeah. is like very much uh like he he understands what needs to happen he's like there's there's rules you know and, and, and tony tony kills him for 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 betraying them and all this uh and while there's a certain amount of kind of mea culpa that you can read into that there's also an element of like tony's morality i mean he is a criminal but his morality is elastic and and he kind of leans on it when it suits him because he kills cesar for 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 betraying them but equally Kind of, uh, Joe has this sense that he is bound to Tony and kind of has to look after him and kind of has to, uh, has to keep him in his in, in his life in that because specifically Tony didn't rat him out. Whereas if you follow that logic, if Tony did rat out Joe for the the job they ran back in the day, Joe would just <laughs> like Tony's life would be forfeit. Uh, so, so, so it's like whatever, whatever, whatever suits Tony is is the correct moral uh, position, I suppose. Uh, again, from a very miserable, awful uh, character, <laughs> hypocritical. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but what's what I find funny as well, because you mentioned how like you didn't want to lay it on too thick with with turning the villains, the the other criminals, into Americans, uh, because in the original, not very good novel. Yes. It's worth talking about who they were going to be changed from in the first place because they're yeah. all originally uh, like like I, most French novels written during the fifties and into the sixties. It was very racist. Planet of the Apes. What was Planet of the Apes about? You might ask. Well, that's a separate podcast conversation. So that yes, the, yes, they were originally like kind of African, uh, like North African and and, and African. Uh, Character. Algerians, I think, wasn't it? it yeah, was yeah, and like there's kind of a there's a long history of kind of racism against Al- Algerians in, in, in France. Still, kind of. yeah. Well, it's one of those co- <laughs> colonial yeah. things, isn't it? I mean, uh, but but uh, the wasn't kind of on board for that kind of very uh, heavy and kind of miserable uh, racism, and rightly so. So he, he he changed it, but you know, he's like, oh, I'm going to change this around. I'll keep a little. I'll keep. I want to keep the racism lighthearted. So I'll cast myself as Cesar the Milanese, and I'll have everyone be like, "Hey, spaghetti, you big." Beep, beep, beep. <laughs> hey, pizza pie, get over here, you big dummy. Well, I mean, I do also like that he's like, uh, and also, did you like he changes the villains to the Grutters because like Germans are still an acceptable target in European cinema in 1955. 
How do we communicate that these grutters are up to no good? Give them a German surname. Well, he's vague about it. I mean, they could easily be Germanic. Uh, uh, prison, fair, it's fair. like it could be worse than German. It could be Dutch. <laughs> but it's like your man is still called Pierre, you know, and it, it is like yeah, and Remy. They are running a, a nightclub in the middle of, of of Paris. I mean, you can query when exactly they got to Paris, but but he does keep it and and they just never left. ambiguous. Like even Joe, they don't kind of get they don't kind of get into oh he's from because like, because it isn't a very kind of on the nose. Uh, film with its dialogue you know so he is swedish but they don't have to get into a whole oh when i worked with you in stockholm kind of thing again except for cesar idiot stupid moron from milan <laughs> to be fair i feel like i feel like mario kind of cancels out the racism there like and not that like calling him mario yeah, is like, a cool customer though yeah, yeah. in fairness like he's, he's loving I, life. I feel like you have to balance it out like i feel like mario and cesar together offer a fully rounded portrayal of italian culture <laughs> mario and is it ina or eva they get killed quick, yeah, yeah. and I feel like uh, that's um, that's great because, like, they 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 had a fantastic time uh, with with each other. I didn't want to, them to suffer for very long, you know. So um, I said that if this movie was made in America, Joe would be the protagonist. But presumably, if this movie was made in Italy, like Mario would be the protagonist, and Cesar would be like his sidekick. Yeah. It would be like a would, series and of ten to- movies where they would. Tonio would be learning like what it is to be a man from <laughs> from from Mario, and it's like uh, what what what's uh, what what is it like to kiss a girl, and and stuff like that. Yeah, but uh, yeah, no. So I, I kind of I, again, I, I you know, it's not layered on too thick, but I think I think that reading of it uh, is there anyway in terms of kind of like the the subtext. Um, anything else we want to talk about? Anything we have? I was going to say um, we talked about. Well, I I said about the movie being straightforward. I loved how straightforward Remy was. It's like he is a junkie. He wants drugs. <laughs> that know, is his like motivation. We, <laughs> yeah, we come into uh, like the office, and he's, he's trying, trying to, to jimmy like, the drawer, jimmy yeah. into it, and doesn't stop. When <laughs> his brother comes in, he's he's just like so kind of focused and one minded, you know. That, that it's like no, because he kind of um, he kind of has a handle on it because it's like as soon as Pierre is like, I, I need you to go uh, kill Tony. You have this. You it, it makes you think. Oh, okay. I know where this is going. This like drug addict, blah blah blah. But then, like very quickly, they they find out about the the ring and that these guys are behind the heist. So he's like, oh, well, well, actually, no, don't don't go off. And- put on a put a kibosh in the whole like we've got, I've a, got a third act here. And like from that point, like his brother's like pretty uh, pretty reliable. Reliable, yeah, yeah. Like he can because he has just a pretty straightforward job of kidnapping that kid. Uh, there's you know that's the heroin. He, yeah. Like he, you know, he's the, got reliable goons working at the perimeter. You know, it's well, that's the thing is when he's not distracted by looking for heroin. So when he like, has heroin, so when he has heroin, like he's he's able to attend to like whatever else you need to to do. You know, I do like one of the observations that has been made is that like the if you want to look for themes and you want to look for again this idea of identity and otherness that runs through the movie and how they relate to one another one of the observations that has been made is that like the thing that separates tony joe mario um and arguably cesare although less so cesare from like the grutters is that 
Tony, Joe, and Mario are frequently positioned in real Paris. And I think that, you know, we mentioned that the jewelry shop actually exists. There's the place where, like, I think Tony stalks one of the Grutter henchmen through, is it uh, Place Royale? That wonderful kind of metro station, which I actually remembered from sight because I've actually been there. Uh, but they're positioned in real Paris. They're shot on location. They're shot on streets. They're out in the open. I mean, yes, there's obviously rear projection when they're driving, but they're part of the environment. Whereas in contrast, the Grutters... Um, and this is an interesting observation I read. I wish I could remember where I read it. But the Grutters tend to be shot on sets. They tend to stay in fixed locations. So they stay in the nightclub, deep underground within Paris, and in this weird half-constructed country villa out in the middle of nowhere. They don't have any physical orientation in relation to Paris or in relation to anything else. It's just the nightclub and the middle of nowhere. That That's where the Grutters are, which I find fa- interesting. It, it it it's It's an interesting technique because the the protagonists do feel then consciously more uh present and more uh you're you're more kind of connected with them in a sense and it's relevant i suppose in terms of the story because the the antagonists aren't these characters downfall you know they're 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 all their own downfalls you know like joe kind of loses his nerve uh and goes to after they kidnap his son and, and and kind of goes and gets himself killed Bizarre, you know, uh, gives the diamond, takes the diamond, and gives the diamond, diamond, the diamond gives it away, um, and then gives up the name. Like Mario, kind of doesn't really uh, do anything wrong, but like Mario's just too good for this sinful world. Yeah, <laughs> but 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 um, and it, it's it's one of those things like where you can talk about a film having great filmmaking, but it is always worth delving into what that actually means, and I think that that definitely applies to the kind of signature. Uh, kind of dialogueless sequence, because as you say, like Andrew, you hadn't kind of known that before going in. I didn't know it during. Yeah, yeah, but it's <laughs> it's not. It didn't occur to me that no one had spoke for thirty minutes. It doesn't draw attention to itself like a like a oneer, like a very conscious. Yeah, and at the time, like oneers are one of those kind of famous, uh, uh, kind of very like every film school kid wants to do a oneer, but it's it it. In and of itself, it's not impressive or it's not valuable to the story that you're trying to yeah. tell. Exactly. And what is actually... Like, I don't think the son sat down and was like, I am going to not use any dialogue for 30 pages of the script because that would be cool. It There's something else going on there. And, like, what is actually happening during that sequence? It is really visceral cinema in terms of how it communicates to you because you're not having characters go oh, look out boys we got company kind of a thing you're you're focusing on the sweat dripping off characters when they're doing something particularly arduous you're focusing on the steps of them going through the plan and again you're you're more keyed into why they're doing what they're doing they have to turn off the lights at this moment because somebody's going by the window etc 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 when they start to 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 pull down the safe so that they can get at the back of it you see how heavy, like you see how heavy it is because you're not focused on them all talking and stuff, and you're you're more pulled into the difficulty of what they're trying to do, which means that you're more like in your brain. It is more elating when they 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 pull it off, and you know if you're talking about how long the film goes without having any dialogue, it's worth talking as well about when the dialogue comes back in because they they pull off the heist they go home 
and it is this very quiet payoff to that to that whole extended sequence where they 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 unveil the diamonds and tony just gives like a very quiet like merit and then they they start like singing in celebration very quietly and then louder and louder and louder and it's like the sound is coming back in in this really effective way Luke, I think you mean he says no. I checked the subtitles. He definitely says no. I do appreciate that these are very 50 subtitles and that they remove all the dirty words. Oh, well, in Korean, he says. <laughs> 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 but 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 just the idea that like uh, it's it's this very quiet thing that he says uh, and it's this one sentence thing. And it isn't it isn't a very. Uh, like, it doesn't draw a lot of attention to the fact that. They're, they're not talking like no one's shushing anyone else or anything like that you know and it's one of those things and that, the soundtrack uh, isn't entirely silent you get ambient noise yeah, on it and yeah. things like that and, and, and the sequences leading up to it have also been quite dialogue light as well yeah, so you don't that's, necessarily that's see what it as... i was going to say is that if you're not primed for it that's exactly when it happens but you do know that they have a sequence like that in you are going to think it's happening sooner than it does because they're yeah. they're they're kind of planning what they're talking earlier and it's again, it's not this like flashy. I'm going to do this, and it's going to be so cool thing. Because there are other sequences even after that where there's not a lot of dialogue. Like the scene you were talking about, Andrew, where where Pierre sees his brother at the desk. There's a lot that that communicates between those two characters, non-verbally. Where his brother takes out the 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 key and then the the the, the drugs, and it gives Pierre this real kind of menacing presence. It really communicates a lot about the relationship between those two characters without them having to uh talk a lot which is funny because in the very next scene pretty much there's there's a lot of like these jewels why they're worth 250 million dollars well i'll tell you what i'm gonna do we're gonna kidnap the boy and then we're gonna hit this and we're gonna do that and we're gonna go <laughs> which is great I because love- they leave they leave the room to have that conversation yeah. which is amazing because like pierre is like this is my quiet room let's step out in the hall and have this conversation about 240 I- million dollars <laughs> i love i love that like the the inspector I, I guess like a detective or something who's a patron has um has kind of mentioned that there's a reward because they've already read in the paper that there like the value of the jewels that were stolen and and one one of the one of the henchmen who who's not uh, who I guess is isn't like the quickest is like oh wow we're going to get that ten <laughs> reward it's like. He's, like the way Pierre turns around, he's like, 240 million, no? <laughs> like, what are you, what? Italian? Yeah, well, I thought it was 240. <laughs> like, Pierre's not like, you know, he doesn't uh, slap him around and kind of berate him around. He's like, no, no, he's kind of bringing them along. And again, like, his brother is just like a drug, drug addict. But he's like, look, I'm going to give you a special job. Like Pierre is honestly probably more morally uh, uh, a better person than Tony. Than, than yeah. Tony is. Like <laughs> it it's not him that 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 you know. Like he's not as violent. You know. He, but I mean, he of... probably is going to kill Tony. I mean, like I, it's probably unambiguous. Although to be Tony, fair, does, yes, but like his, you know, his his and looks like would you miss him? Would you miss him? <laughs> when when we find Tony, Tony is having a great time. <laughs> Like, uh, by all accounts, hasn't been treated very bad. He's not like, where's dad? Where's mom? Any of those sorts of things. He's like, I'm having such a great time in, in the weird house. Yeah, with but my the, uncle the, Remy. The, um. Yeah, yeah. But, 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 the, Darren, you, you, you and I, maybe Luke has seen it as well, uh, MacGruber, when, when MacGruber is, is, is talking about like how the villain is a really bad guy. <laughs> um, yeah. 
there's a there's a beautiful shot where they're kind of speeding away in the car and the kid is like is mom not coming as well and and pierre's brother's like oh no she'll be along later and like she's kind of running along kind of terrified and horrified uh just you can see her kind of fading at the distance in the, in the window and again it's like there's there's a lot of great sequences in this film other than the one you're going to get told about on on imdb like those pov shots and and, and uh, even like the little effective. shots like the balloon like again it, it sounds like an art house foreign film cliche but the, like the kidnapping of tonio as his balloon flies up into the sky is almost like it, it would be a parody but it kind of works sort of thing yeah and i think of as well when the, the, there's, there's a there's a shot where they kind of throw the suitcase and the umbrella into the uh, the river and it kind of it snaps you out of the this kind of long sequence that you've been very Tense. Uh, tense and focused on. Um, I, I think stuff like that is so effective and, and audiences really respond to that. And as I say, I, I think it's a tool that should be used more. Like you think of a couple of years ago, everyone's got a story about when they went to see A Quiet Place in the cinema, you know, and like nobody in the cinema was willing to make a sound. Is that because that movie is a very effective horror? I would say no, but it is very effective at visually communicating to you that these characters can't be noisy. People don't remember terrible horrifying monsters from that movie they remember oh they both about to step on a nail <laughs> yeah, no, I, like even at home like watching the silent place with my parents my mother would lean over and whisper and ask can we pause the movie now as if the monsters inside the movie could hear again it, it's very good at creating that sense of emotional investment which is i can imagine somebody coming into the room and saying what's this <laughs> just everybody <laughs> jump. Just, <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 no like, like like is that is that your one emily blunt <laughs> <laughs> is that jim from the office what's he doing now um director you say um <laughs> But yeah, no, no, I, th- I think it is. And I think it's very, very good at that. One thing I want to note, actually, because um, we, we talked a little bit earlier about, like, the idea of, like, the heist as metaphor for filmmaking. And Luke kind of mentioned the sequence separately. But there is a wonderful sequence where, like, they're getting ready to go to the heist and everybody's saying goodbye to their families. And again, it, it's it's a sequence that is like a stock montage now. It's like, men got to go to work tough but men gotta do it kind of sequence but you have like Cesare and again it's a wonderful moment where the nightclub singer she's stretching she's bending she's humming she's singing and it's beautifully constructed because the camera then moves back from her she picks up the trumpet she hands it to the trumpeteer she taps the cello player on the forehead the xylophone player comes in as the camera kind of pushes back and he crosses the shot and you see the entire group of musicians coming together and harmonizing Right before you get that kind of like robbery sequence, which is very much about these robbers, these these kind of like thieves coming together and harmonizing. And again, you, you do get, you know, every movie is about movie making or whatever sort of nonsense you want to argue there. But you get this sense of watching a bunch of artists collaborate on something. And it's only really when one of them goes off on his own and does something like stupid without thinking about like the rest of the the rest of this minute trumpet solo yeah that's an exact <laughs> yeah that's that's Caesar's half minute trumpet solo solo basically is what ruins it for everybody and it is it is a you know it is a cliche at this point to kind of say or kind of a cliche to say that that heist movies are like 
the filmmakers making movies a bit the filmmaking experience and all everything that. is like if you stretch if you pull back far enough but, yeah. but you you pull at that thread and you you know different filmmakers are saying different things about that that experience mm-hmm. to see steven soderbergh it's a kind of a lark that you don't that you're going to get more out of if you don't take it too seriously so so so, so some of the time to um to other characters to, to, to other filmmakers it is this more uh red-blooded visceral experience uh, to, to Michael Mann, it's like about the process and about procedure and about executing it. To Nolan, it's about explaining it and then showing it after he's explained how it works. And, and to Dishon, it's like, is it worth it? <laughs> <laughs> it's all going to end up on bloodshed anyway. Yeah, I can, I can direct like the Naked City. I can make one of the greatest because it's it, and it is, it is, it is such a wonderfully bleak ending in that that you 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 do even in a story where it's like it all goes wrong you do have this kind of sense of the saving grace and the kind of redemption and all that where tony's like joe wanted this money for his kid if i could just save the kid and, and get the money and get them back to to his mom it doesn't matter if i die and you have that wonderfully uh again visceral and and kind of thrilling sequence where he is racing home and dying yeah and it's like you're seeing all these images, the trees and 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 uh, overhead, and yeah. he's seeing yeah. these images for the last time as he's as he's fading away. The kids having a blast, <laughs> and, <laughs> and they 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 he just about makes it, dies. The kid is saved, but but the you know there's no one coming after the kid at this point. Yeah, he could have just left the kid at the restaurant with the but, briefcase, but, and it but, probably would but, have been. But he has to get the money back as well. He crashes. He dies. The police instantly get the money. Yeah. The, yeah. the mom just wants the kid. And it's like, yeah, yeah, kind of off for nothing. I mean, <laughs> well, kind of worse for the nothing. Mo- they, they, the police get a cut, at least. <laughs> <laughs> like, they're, they're going to pocket some of that. Hardworking public servants that they are, apparently, in this universe of this film. But I mean, yeah, no, that's the thing is that, like, well, after well, all yeah, of that. We- we 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 want to give some recognition to to guards and the the hard work that they do and the money that they take from criminals <laughs> to put in their pockets. Those, those videos don't dance themselves, Andrew. Those vi- like <laughs> you read you read between the lines, you know. And and again, is is Dasan saying something about the authorities or not in this film? Like the authorities in this film are are barely worth talking about. They're incompetent. They're there, yeah, but 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 they're 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 nowhere near the. There's no there's no like intrepid cop kind of right on Tony's tail. They they haven't a clue what's going on. <laughs> they're easily thwarted. Uh, yeah, it's not like why he's not worth bothering with. Really. Uh, yeah, where there's all this obligatory sort of cops are great stuff, and and at the end you have a police officer explain to you the meaning of the movie that you've just watched. Um, you're you're waiting for you know like at the end of this one of the cops to pick up the briefcase and well I guess that Tony finally discovered that life is nothing but Rafifi. Yeah, Louise does do that kind of thing that movies do sometimes where 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 she they, explains they, the moral to Joe. She's, yeah, exactly. Just so just so um, you know, crime not cool. Looks cool. Yeah. Even you're going to be spending about two hours watching it be cool, but just so we're clear. Not cool. Maybe it's maybe it's lame people who are cool. Yeah, maybe maybe it's hip to be square. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I do think it works though because uh like the again it is the contrast between the 
uh, ideal of pulling off this this amazing heist for your kid and you're wonderful and you're brilliant and you're and all that and then the reality like the line that jumps out to me from that big very moralistic <laughs> monologue <laughs> is where's my baby you thug you know and he's like i'm doing this for my boy and it's like it kind of brings the reality home a lot harder for and he that's where he loses it basically Joe. yeah because like providing for his child the hard way would you know it would be a lot of work involved like wouldn't just get around, sit around reading a paper, eating a croissant, <laughs> having a coffee, watching a jewelry store, doing some timing. He's having good fun with like the child. I, I'm, I'm like as, as aside from the fact that like his his wife is seemingly busy doing chores and he's just kind of laying about, um, half playing with the child. I, 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 I do, I do like the extent to which he is playing with the child. What? Um, that's that's uh, the thing that kind of Luke Luke alluded to at the very beginning to bring this full circle, which I really like, which is this idea of crashing two characters from one kind of heist movie into another kind of heist yeah. movie, where like he looks like he's, he's not the so fun. Bad. Yeah, Joe looks like he'd be like one of the Ocean's fourteen or whatever. He'd be like number twelve on the call sheet. He'd go with James Can and Casey Affleck down to Mexico. That would be what Joe would do in an Ocean's thirteen movie, and it would be hilarious. He'll probably be played by Joel Kinnaman, for example. He, or something he has like a that. real Brad Pitt in Ocean's kind of vibe, like this kind of yeah. yeah. And and then Tony comes back into his life and ruins it, which like. I, I think it's much more effective for the fact that it begins with this kind of cutesy, wholesome stuff. And as, as like Luke said, by the end of it, having spent a couple of days with like post-release Tony, it's where is my son, you thug? Like, what have you done? You have destroyed this life that we've managed to build together through your stupid, stupid choices. Um, I kind of, yeah, I think that there's, there's a brutality in that that I actually kind of really, really like. And yeah, I think that the, I suppose the last, kind of thought that I had in, the, in my notes that you kind of mentioned how influential this, this film is. Uh, and like, I feel it, it is influential on those different branches of the heist movie uh, because it has that, of course you don't get away with it because these guys don't get away with it in real life. End it. Which you can, uh, like you can link that pretty clearly to the original Ocean's Eleven where they don't get away with it. They, they lose the money like. Um, and from that into the uh, remake of Ocean's Eleven, where it's a lot more kind of fun and a different kind of an ending. Uh, like you can go from this to 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 uh, the kind of fun, sexy Las Vegas style thriller caper kind of movie, and into kind of Melville, Le Cirque Rouge, kind of more serious kind of stuff. Pretty, uh, they like it's it's got a lot of DNA across the genre you know yeah no like there's a lot of there's a surprise we watch or watching it how much of like oceans 11 there was in there right down to like the andy garcia character the andy garcia character is the light and fluffy version of pierre where he's like dating that you know where he's involved with the kind of like the our hero's ex and there's this kind of pride thing going on and there's the uh oh well don't worry we'll blackmail them for the money anyway kind of scheming going on it it is like it's it's very very influential you can see its fingerprints on everything i think which is quite impressive i would also like to reference that like when they break into the jewelry store i appreciate that they are wearing ballet shoes and sneakers for sneaking there's a point where it looks like he's wearing converse which is which is quite nice or sort of one of those things called are they converse yeah well do you know what ninjas used to walk on their hands and i've tried it it's it's difficult to do but it's very quiet as in as in you get you get down with your with your feet 
on your your hands and then and then you put your hands forward and and step on um and step on them i, I mean they didn't move like that all the time they would they would they would but but for 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 certain points presumably when when um say if you were in a room with somebody else in the room yeah and, and you, you didn't need want to, to be know. very quiet Andrew, you don't you don't need these very careful considered uh ancient Asian techniques to to pull off a heist. You just all you need bit of PVA glue, could have yeah. could have washed up liquid bottle in half. Make sure Hello, to ask, Bella. make sure to ask your parents' permission before you pull off. <laughs> I, I do, I do <laughs> love by and you're good to go. I love, by the way, the insight that the audience has got into, like Luke and Andrew's different mindsets. Where Luke's like, you know, I haven't ever legally been proven to have committed a heist, but I've I've thought about it a lot. I've read a lot of books. I I've paid a lot of attention to it. And Andrew's like. I've never legally been convicted of ninjaing, but an interesting yeah, no, thing to note I'm, about I'm, it is I'm, I've never murdered like, anybody yeah. like in their sleep <laughs> while quietly sneaking into their house. Never never convicted on no dope. <laughs> as Carlito says. No, um All I no, can I've... say all I can say is that like in heist movies, they always kinda of pull the various characters in from random different side projects they're working on. If you come to me listeners and say you want to come in on a hut? Like, I'm probably going to say yes. That's all. <laughs> I, I have yes, never... Been, yeah, I, I, I'm in. It, it, oh, no. They they never... they never It never works. You know, it never works. People delude <laughs> themselves into thinking that it'll work for them, but it's never the case. Yeah, I but feel it like... it might work for me. I feel like I need to figure out what kind of heist I'm being drafted into. Like, if I'm approached by a Michael Mann protagonist, I'm like, thank you, but I'm not interested. If I'm approached by, like, George Clooney, I'm like, yeah, sure, count me in. This will be fun. When you're, 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 you're like a, a, a fry cook. <laughs> yeah, that's I'm exactly. Like, uh, Darren, we need someone to drive. It's like, I don't know how. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know why you thought that this would be a good idea. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, well, ask Danny Trejo. That's, that's, a, that's a tricky one with Mad though, because it's like a Michael Mann protagonist comes to you, you want to take part in a heist. You're like, well, I'm like a fun, like easygoing kind of guy. I'm kind of, I'm kind of like a Jim Belushi type, so this is probably going to be a caper. <laughs> oh, oh no! Wait! Oh, it's thief! Oh, I'm thief. <laughs> um, all right then. And I will also. Is the juice worth the squeeze? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, sorry. No. What? What? What is it again? Um, is the bank? Um, I think. I think it is juice what's worth the, the squeeze. What's the expression? Joe Griffin uses the 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 expression. Um. I anyway. think it is the juice worth the squeeze. Is that what they say in in Heat? I think, yeah, I think it is. Um, you know, like for- the line from Ocean's Thirteen. He's he's like, um, um, I want the baby. I don't want the labor. Um, <laughs> um but uh, before we wrap up, just obligatory kind of like running through two fifty tropes. A lot of inappropriate smoking in this movie. You will notice that little Tonio is coughing quite a bit, presumably because everybody around him is puffing like a chimney. Because he and, lives in France. Because he lives in France, <laughs> like he's expected to be puffing. He should be puffing on his first cigarette, like during that final anyway. chase sequence. By the way, I'm taking a mix saying France. Like I, 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 I know it is France. I'm, I'm, I'm going to say France. All right, uh, and and it sounds weird when people when people say France. <laughs> Just gonna put that out there. Uh, and also, I do love that like it's heavily implied that like Tony has tuberculosis from his time in 
like prison where like Joe's like, you should go get some fresh country air, help you breathe. And instead he chooses to sit around in rooms populated by people smoking so he can nurse a terrible cough. So inappropriate smoking. Even though it's a French movie, I'm still going to say that smoking was inappropriate. Um, also the fact that, yeah, constantly throughout the movie, characters are smoking even during those heist sequences. Because, of course, it is a French movie. And they're using an umbrella as an ashtray. That is that is a very fair point. Uh, <laughs> I don't think there's any food waste, so I think that about wraps it up. I can't think of any, yeah. yeah. They wasted that sandwich on that kid. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. He, he asked for a big one. And he's a kid, so like you should have given him a kid's one. Um, <laughs> I like I like that they the um at one point one of the um one of the kind of the underworld or one of the shopkeepers or something says to Tony, um, how how's Joe? As in like how's Joe? I hear his child has been abducted. And he's <laughs> like, Oh he's he's thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> you know how it is, ups and downs, highs and lows. <laughs> Yeah, he's thrilled. Thanks. Like his 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 delivery of that is just is just perfect. Um, I also do like the bit where the, the guys like you know just let us know and we'll get all the guys together. And it's like I don't think this is that kind of movie. Although I do want a sequence where like all of Paris rides out to this house in the country to demand the return of Tonio. Uh, I do like because there's as I said, there's not a heavy police presence in this film. But after the heist, there is. Uh, at Mario's funeral, the, the the police guy is kind of waiting for the criminals to show up, uh, but they are obviously hiding, and everyone's kind of sent flowers privately. And that. The, the, the 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 cop has obviously seen too many movies where, where criminals always dutifully kind of show up. To, I like even like to catch a thief is the same uh, year, and it's got that like funeral sequence where Barry Brown gets like slapped. Maybe, maybe, maybe the maybe the, the cops saw that. Like, <laughs> it's like we've got an easy win here. At a at a funeral, look for someone who's one hundred and fifty to two hundred meters away. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or like check behind all the trees, you know. Yeah, exactly. All right then, and before we go, then just a couple of quotes actually, just on the film that I think are quite worth noting. There's Jay Hoberman's observation that Rafifi did not invent a genre. If Rafifi did not invent a genre, it was nonetheless a unique synthesis. For the French, Rafifi had Hollywood pizzazz. For Americans, it exuded continental sophistication. For both, it possessed an authoritative naturalism, albeit one suffused with a sort of American and Paris enthusiasm for Pagali after dark. For the rest of the world, it had all of the above. The San was a filmmaker who thrived in exile but never lost his American identity. It is easier to drive a director out of Hollywood than to drive Hollywood out of a director. Like that's uh, as good a note as any to close on, unless there's anything else we want to talk about. Anything we haven't discussed already? Anything jumping out at people? No, I'm happy. Happy as a sandboy. That's, uh... <laughs> yeah. I wonder if that's what he actually said, or if that was just somebody correcting the subtitles to remove a dirty word. Uh, I like to think of him as a happy sandboy, like presumably building sandcastles and things. That's what that means, right? We, yeah, like like he's a is a boy in a sand pit. Yeah. I mean, this did inspire Inception. Let's be fair. Happy, this... happy as a boy with sand. Yep, this was. It. Oh yeah, with the, with the little spinning, um, <laughs> with the little spinning wheel. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, all right then. Okay, so what we normally do at the end of the podcast is we ask our guests to recommend something for listeners, something they're enjoying at the moment. If it's something related to the movie, the movie we discussed, it'd be something completely unrelated. So to give uh, Luke a chance to think about it, I'm going to ask Andrew to go first. 
We mentioned earlier a possibly unpaid for Martel uh, cognac advertisement. I'm going to give another unpaid cognac ad- advertisement for Remy R- 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 Martin VSOP for a special occasion. It, um, it's 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 my favorite cognac. Um, it's great. Um, I I like um. Yeah, it's 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 it is it it is more for a special occasion. I had it like I I I wouldn't drink it all the time. I had it for my birthday, um, because it's a bit more expensive, but it's not crazy expensive. So you'd say Kanye to that cognac, yak, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so um, in terms of uh, Luke mentioned that everybody loves ice cream, and of course they do. Um, I and an ice cream that I'm enjoying lately that relates to movies is um, Netflix and Chilled um, by uh, by Ben and Jerry's. It's nice. I might have played it out because I, I I'd say I've probably had about four on on the bounce now um, uh, without without switching it up. I real I appreciate that Ben and Jerry's is a very personal thing. Some people like fish food. I don't understand it. And uh, a movie that I recommend, we we spoke about kind of North African racism. There was a lot of Italian racism in in this movie. Um, A movie that combines both is um, The Prophet uh, by Jacques Audiard because it it has a Corsican racism. <laughs> that sweet intersection. Yeah. I like that you have a graph. It's like those two circles. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot. What's the Ben and Jerry's with the core? You know, it's a real swirl of two, two wonderful, two wonderful, <laughs> <laughs> two great tastes that taste great together. Um, apparently. So, having set that up for Luke, I'm going to ask Luke, what would you recommend? So, if you, as I say, movies like Rafifi are real kind of pathways into other similar films that you you kind of become excited to to seek out and if you kind of enjoy heist crime thrillers and kind of international cinema uh i would recommend the movie the movies of uh fabian bielinski i know you mentioned watching a few argentinian movies um so his movies uh el ora and nine queens there are these movies made in the 2000s they're both very different but very well made uh kind of noir films uh, nine queens is about this like kind of young con artist who teams up with this uh older master and it's like whose side is who on kind of a thing you know uh real kind of uh a thinker's kind of kind of crime thriller and then elora is a bit more kind of abstract it's about this um like epileptic who has all these like fantasies about committing the perfect crime and then he finds himself kind of uh pulled into one and uh kind of is like putting the pieces together based off of his own uh, projections and stuff like that. Uh, Bielinski, like, unfortunately, he only made these two features before he, he died uh, of a heart attack in kind of 2007 or eight. But they're, if you if you enjoy these kinds of films, I think they're really worth, uh, worth checking out. Thank you. And for myself, um, because we mentioned Man, I rewatched Miami Vice recently. That movie is a masterpiece. It is like, what if Heat had a nervous breakdown? It is delightful. Every time I go back to it, I find myself finding more in it. It's very much the opposite of Rafiki. Miami Vice. Miami Vice. The the Colin Farrell and Jamie Foxx. I, I watch. I watch Collateral. Collateral is astounding. Collateral is amazing. So incredible. Collateral is. The, yeah. the, there's so many. There's so many parts to it that are that are that are that are that are great. But I I, I want I want to do a nightclub scene. 
in my in my Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> I, lo- I love that, like, like Andrew Andrew riffing on like classic movie scenes in his uh, Dungeons and Dragons game mastering is a recurring trope. I did Sicario last time, <laughs> the the border scene on <laughs> their crossing. I I I I engine. It's funny because they asked to go to the place where I was going to try and figure out how am I going to get them there. And then, like, I had engineered it so that they're in a traffic jam. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Um, but yes, I would I would recommend uh, Miami Vice, if only because it's almost it's it's this idea taken to its logical extreme in that it's lots of men planning lots of things, nothing going according to plan, everything collapsing into itself, and like the universe itself is having a gigantic nervous breakdown. Um, it is fantastic dazzling i i have not words to describe i i really really love that movie um all right i'm gonna watch that yeah um it is you, you it's a lot it's a lot is what i will say um it is very it's like cloud atlas it's one of those movies where it's like a director given complete creative freedom and what happened was beautiful and inexplicable um that's that's kind of like how i would pitch it all right then also jamie jamie fox refused to film any scenes on a boat or on a plane which I adore. <laughs> like Jamie Foxx convinced Michael Mann to, sorry, this has turned into the Miami Vice podcast, but Jamie Foxx went to Mann and he's like, we should make a Miami Vice movie together. We should make a Miami Vice movie together. And Mann was like, I don't know. I don't want to revisit it. And Jamie Foxx was like, come on, come on, come on. I'm, I'm a bankable star now. Let's do it. And Mann said, yes. And then Jamie Foxx like won the Oscar. And then Jamie Foxx was like, by the way, in this Miami Vice movie we're making together, I'm A, not setting foot on a boat, B, not setting foot on a plane, C, not going to the Dominican Republic where you've decided you're filming most of this. Make it work. It's kind of incredible. Yeah, he's the guy on the highest too. <laughs> he's not, there's lots of things that he can't do. Like the, if, if I had a jewel heist, one thing I can't do is touch that jewelry. Because the text like, we I hate it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have a, a tactile aversion to, to like all of these kind of jewels and kind of trinkets and things. I don't want any. I don't want it anywhere near me. So, <laughs> just wrapping it up in a bundle and saying, "You take this." Um, yeah, just get they, away from they, me. Dodge it. They had the jewels in a nice little bundle in this movie, Andrew. Maybe they did. They did. I appreciated that. Um, it's funny actually because it was a jewel heist movie, and I didn't have that disgust. Sorry, if Caesar shared your aversion to like touching jewelry that was not already in a neat bundle. I mean, this problem exactly. would have, uh, you know, all those problems would have been avoided. Um, that is true. Also, side fact, uh, after Fox won the Oscar, he insisted, sorry, we're still in Miami Vice. After Fox won the Oscar, he insisted on getting top billing and getting paid more than Colin Farrell. And Farrell basically, apparently, because he's a nice guy and presumably was not aware of where he was at that moment in time by his own account, said, you know what, sure, just make me second billing and take five million off me and give it to him. Uh, which was quite nice. Um, and that is how they resolved the contractual disputes over Miami Vice. Anyway, thank you for yeah, listening to... That's so that Jamie Foxx can buy tanks. <laughs> you seen the cars he drives. That, that's so funny to me. and This doesn't need to stay in. But uh, the, I just it just makes me think of that line in uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, where where like Robert Downey Jr. finds out that he was never up for the, the part. And like, Val Kilmer's like, yeah, Colin Farrell wanted too much money, so they were just using you as like a fake weight. <laughs> Apparently not. He would have been like, oh, some criminal wants to be in the movie instead. Ah, yeah. <laughs> Give him a job. <laughs> Seems like he'd enjoy doing it. All right, then. So if... Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is another good movie. Kiss Kiss Bang, yeah. Uh, 
So if listeners are looking for a bit more Luke online, where can we find you? What you up to? What you doing? You can always find me on filmandoublin.ie. You can find me on Twitter at Mr. Cynical. That's cynical with an I. I host a podcast, which I, I think this is the first time I've actually remembered to plug it, Darren. Uh, when you've had me on uh, with my with my sister and co-host Jess called the Breakout Role Podcast. We watch the first leading roles of Hollywood icons. We hopefully have some new episodes available for you in the, in the months ahead and you can also find me in pretty deadly films uh film in dublin's very own e-zine we have a new issue out right now issue five that's reboots returns revivals our first one of the year uh we're hoping to have a few more available this year also please do go check that out as well yeah i, I would i would second that recommendation it's always good to support like irish film and irish film writing and you've got some really great people in there some really great art in there as well actually which is fantastic if you um, don't want me to 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 rob jewelry stores people this, <laughs> you gotta you gotta you gotta give me that you gotta give me those clicks that's, that's, that's... i was about to say we, we should point out when you say that you're not getting paid for like you're not getting paid for pretty deadly films it is a free easy because when you say if you want to stop me robbing jewelry stores i feel like you're scaring but, but you gotta keep me busy you gotta keep <laughs> occupied you, you got to keep my brain from wandering into no but like i could i could pull it off <laughs> I, like i totally could. <laughs> um, there's your next pretty deadly films uh magazine lined up for you there i think um high oh high scores you call it high scores and it's it'll all be about heist movies and it'll be like my version of oj simpson's like i totally didn't do it but if i did did, yeah this is how i would have done it Um, a slightly more wholesome version of that one hopes um you can find the well it it would be like when when you're in course you can say like if i were going to rob this jewelry store why would I write an entire Easy. issue of a magazine yeah. about yeah. about how I was going to do it? That would be stupid. Yeah. Do I look stupid to you? I don't look stupid to you. All, uh, all of this could be cut out, Darren. For legal purposes. Um, all right, and and I'm gonna I'm gonna break from format. I'm gonna plug something I'm doing at the moment as well because I'm doing at the Escapist. We've launched long form video criticism, and we launched our first video a couple of weeks ago now, uh, which looks at Master and Commander: Far Side of the World. So if you are interested in supporting work that I do outside the podcast, maybe give that a watch, a like, a subscribe, or retweet or share. Um, it is it is very good. I'm very proud of it. Uh, I think it turned out remarkably well. Matt J. Lachlan was my video editor on that, um, and he did an astounding job. So even if you just want to watch it with the sound off, it looks gorgeous because it's Master and Commander and also because it's edited really, really well. So you can find that uh, online as well. All right, the podcast is available at the 250 on Streamer, on SoundCloud, on Stitcher, on iTunes, wherever good podcasts are found. Um, we'll be back next week. We've finished our world tour, but we'll be joined by the wonderful Carl Sweeney uh, from the Fantastic Movie Palace podcast to discuss another surprisingly recent entry on the 250 from 1942. That is To Be or Not To Be. Ernest Lubitz, not Mel Brooks. Although feel free to watch both if you want. Take it easy, guys. We'll be back next week. Bye. Thank you, Luke. Bye. Thanks, Luke. Thank you so much, Luke. That was great.